Did you ever read about a frog who dreamed of being a king and then became one? Well, except for the names and a few other changes, if you talk about me, the story is the same one. But I got an emptiness deep inside that I've tried, but it won't let me go. And I'm not a man who likes to swear, but I never cared for the sound of being alone. I am myself to no one there, and no one heard at all, not even the chair. I cried. I am, said I, and I am lost, and I can't even say why. I am, I Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 90 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast in which I and my guest methodically discuss the films of the Criterion Collection in chronological order of their original release. In this episode, we conclude season three of the podcast with a discussion of short or undated films found within the collection that were, with one exception, all originally released in 1971. Now, this is going to be a long episode, as we'll be talking about nine different films involving some truly brilliant and exceptional directors at various stages of their careers. I do know that it's asking a lot for my listeners to commit to several hours of your attention, but I think it's worth it. We had some excellent conversations over the past several weeks that it's taken me to compile all these tracks. And so for those who do prefer time markers because you want to listen in on what we had to say about a particular film please know that uh, I have included that information in the show notes page that's found on our website, uh, criteriancast.com. So you can find the stop and start times for each individual segment if that suits you. Uh, But even if you haven't watched the films, just go ahead and listen. I think I try to avoid the worst kind of spoilers, and the conversations are great on their own terms. Uh, So here's a list of the films that we're going to be discussing in this episode. Uh, I will introduce my guests at the beginning of each segment, so this is just the films themselves. Uh, The first one is titled Ingmar Bergman, and as you can imagine, it's a documentary uh, about that director made by Stieg Bjorkman, who uh, has done a fair amount of work in this documentary field. I'll say more about that in that segment. And this was shot while Bergman was in the process of directing The Touch, which is a feature film that we discussed early on in this season. Uh, The Castaway of Providence Street is film number two. This is a documentary about the private life of Luis Bunuel, made by a close friend and associate of his. Uh, Factory is the third film. This is a short film directed by Krzysztof Kieślowski, back when he was just basically beginning his his work as a director, uh, well, well before some of the films that are much more popular, well-known, and made him famous. Uh, Seems Like Only Yesterday is the fourth film. This is a documentary, sort of an experimental film of sorts, directed by Carol Ballard, who went on to do The Black Stallion and Fly Away Home, 
and other kind of family-oriented entertainment. Uh, interesting work, uh, not quite at all like what you, what you might associate with Carol Ballard at this stage of his career. The fifth film is Holmesdale. This is a kind of a hour-long short feature film by Peter Weir. I think it was produced uh, through a grant, maybe kind of seen as student work of his. Uh, of course, he went on to do Picnic at Hanging Rock and uh, The Truman Show and Dead Poets Society and Master and Commander, a bunch of other things, but this is kind of seminal work from him. We're going to talk about Nausicaa, a film made for French television by Adnes Varda. It's, of course, part of that huge, uh, complete Adnes Varda set, but it's really just a supplement on, on one of those discs. Uh, the film was censored and never shown in public, and only one print survives. So I'll have a few things to say about that. Then we have Nostalgia and Critical Mass, two short films by Hollis Frampton, and finally, The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, a short film by Stan Brackage. So we cover the full gamut of uh, styles and uh, and works. Now, most of them perhaps on the obscure side, but still pretty important and memorable in their own way. Now, since most of these films don't have any kind of meaningful or memorable soundtrack music, I've selected a variety of popular songs from 1971 to use in those transitions between each segment. Each of the songs was included on a bootleg 8-track tape uh, titled Rock All-Star Hits Volume 2 <laughs> that my family listened to on repeat many dozens of times when I was just a 9-year-old kid back in 1971. Um, analysis of the tape, if you look at all the songs that are on that, shows that they were released on radio as radio hits in March and April of 71, and uh, some enterprising pirate at that time just copies and put them on this eight track tape and my dad bought it at a gas station one day i think and it just became kind of a family favorite some pretty great music on that one so there may be some slight association between the content of the music and the films being discussed um I advise that you don't read too much into it. It's mostly just me sharing some tunes that I'm particularly fond of. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. And then I also just want to kind of wrap up this little segment by um, saying something that I'll be sort of reiterating at the end of the episode as well. Uh, just an expression of, of immense gratitude up front for everybody who's contributed not only to this episode, but to all who generously offered me their time, attention, and insight into the conversations that occurred over the course of uh, this season, uh, which was formally launched back in January of 2019. So it's almost been two full years of real time that it's taken for me to get through just one year of criterion time. <laughs> but it's a very... It's been a very rewarding journey and uh, really very satisfied and happy that I've made that commitment and that I've had so many great people along the way join me in that journey. Uh, I am committed to continuing, so I do plan on starting a new season in January of 2021 after we get some of our end-of-the-year stuff done and maybe take a little bit of a break and maybe even experiment with the format a little bit. We'll see what we come up with there. I'll have a bit more to say about that. Uh, so let me just give this, again, a heartfelt thank you, not only to my contributors, but also to you as listeners uh, who have uh, tuned in along the way and considered what I and our guests have had to say about all these wonderful mind-expanding and richly rewarding movies that we've processed throughout the course of this season three. 
I am genuinely pleased and honored to put these recordings out there for your enjoyment and, of course, for your reflection. So, having said all that, let's get on with the show. here tonight to talk with Norman Buckley. Norman, this is your third visit to the podcast. Really great to be in touch with you again. We've had a nice little pre-show conversation, catching up with each other. Uh, how's it going for you today? It's going great. I'm very happy to be here with you again. I, I quite enjoyed this little documentary that you sent along to me. It was uh, it's very interesting. Well, for sure. And and just to kind of put it in context, uh, you and I first got to know each other along with our mutual friend, Jordan Esso. This was what, back in like this late spring, early summer of 2019, last yes. year, uh-huh. still part of season three of this podcast, in which the three of us talked about Ingmar Bergman's The Touch, a 1971 film that uh, starred Elliot Gould and B.B. Anderson. It's kind of known as Bergman's one English language film. And it was a little bit of a, of a crossroads in his own career. And we, we talked quite at length about that particular film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one here, this is a film that is titled Ingmar Bergman. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just the guy's name mm-hmm. is the name of this documentary. It's, it's directed by Stieg Bjorkman, uh, who is a Criterion affiliated director. He did uh, Ingrid Bergman in her own words, kind of an essay film uh, using writings of Ingrid Bergman. and film Which is also, also a great film. It really is. It's yeah. a fantastic film. I know there's been some some blowback about, oh, does this really deserve its own release? Should, shouldn't this just be a supplement or something? It's like, no, I think this is a very mm-hmm. outstanding piece of work. I like uh, it too. Yes. Yeah, so Stieg Borkman, is, he seems to have made a pretty good living for himself uh, talking to people and, and writing books, interviewing, uh, and he's done some of his own directing as well. But I am absolutely delighted to have you on this one because you are a director yourself. And uh, that's probably one of my biggest curiosities is to hear some of your reactions to uh, the things that you see Ingmar Bergman doing and, the, and what you hear him saying as he's being interviewed. Um, and also uh, there's some making of stuff going on while he is shooting this film, The Touch which uh, I, I remember your reaction and, and all of us. I think we all saw that this was a bit of a, maybe a flawed Bergman movie. It's certainly not one of his his uh, stellar moments. And a lot of people might say it's even his worst movie, certainly his worst once he became into his kind of full artistic maturity. But we'll set aside the touch itself, except maybe to comment a little bit about what we see happening in the film. But uh, what are your, what are your reactions? Uh, you've already said you liked it. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, f- first of all, I'll just say uh, I do direct television. It's it's always kind of it's a little nerve wracking to be cast into the same role as Ingmar <laughs> yeah, Bergman. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely think he's one of my um, uh, heroes in terms of a filmmaker that I really admire. 
But uh, directing television is, of course, very different than directing a feature. Particularly, uh, Bergman wrote his own material, which which I've never done. I'm always coming in and taking the material of others and interpreting that. But um, I do find this film to be a very pithy uh, description of what his creative process was, and I enjoyed it from that point of view very much. I um, I particularly liked the fact that he talked a little bit about his prep, and then at one point he said, uh, we know exactly what we're to do, but then the film opens with him changing his mind about what they were planning <laughs> to do. I, I love that beginning because, um, uh, well, the beginning of the film basically is they were setting up for this hallway scene, and then he liked the light and the mist outside and, and quickly decided that they should go outside to to shoot the shot of her driving up to the hospital, which opens the film. And um, that's pretty much, uh, in my mind, a very accurate description of the way the filmmaking process works because you're, you're going down one road and then suddenly you, you have to regroup and go down another one. And uh, I enjoyed the opening of it very much. And particularly as it got later into the film and he says, we know exactly what we're to do. And, and realizing that, yes, with all the most careful prep, you still are flying by the seat of your pants all the time. Yeah, there, there are so many uh, kind of random elements. And I think even his opening quote, you know, when uh, presumably I think it's Bjorkman who's doing the interview says, uh, how do you define or how do you describe the role of the director? And I think Bergman's quote, uh, not exactly, is that, uh, you know, the director doesn't have time to think because he's dealing with right. all these problems. <laughs> I wrote it down. It's, he says, film directing. Well, one director said that a film director is someone who never has time to think due to all the problems. I think that's the closest one can get to a definition. I thought that was a, a wonderful quote. And it really is. And, and, and again, this is Ingmar Bergman. I mean, considered by many among the very top directors of all time. I mean, there's a lot of people who would say he's the number one. If he's not the number one, he's up in the top five. So he is a, a master of cinema, a, a, a true legend, a titan. And here he is uh, with an incredible sort of Hall of Fame resume behind him, starting with, well, however far you want to go back, Smiles of a Summer Night, The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, Persona, uh, the, the you know uh, Winter Light and, and that trilogy there. Uh, and here he is really, you know, have, having really nailed it for, for quite a few films in a row. He's, he's kind of swimming right now. He's trying to figure out what's next. And, he, and, and it's very interesting to capture this documentary of him speaking, I think, pretty candidly, even making himself a bit vulnerable when his career is at a little bit of a crossroads. Now, he had some fantastic films ahead of him. In, in fact, Cries and Whispers was what's the next one that he made right mm -hmm. after this and uh, uh, scenes from a marriage and, you know, some of that stuff of the later seventies, uh, you know, culminating kind of in Fanny and Alexander in the early eighties to kind of wrap up his career. And you can already tell, even in some of the scenes here, he's feeling like, yeah, he's put in some years now and, and the fatigue is setting in and some of the pressure and even in his own memoirs, he, he's, he pretty much tells it like it is. He didn't really enjoy making this film and doesn't really have a lot of, 
fond memories or words to say about it. Now, I don't think it was anything personal towards Elliot Gould or B.B. Anderson. It was just kind of, he's sort of looking at what's the new direction. Where is he going to go from here? And I thought that was also interesting just to kind yeah. of see this guy with, with this incredible legacy and career and reputation. And he's kind of, kind of uh, you know, struggling at the moment. Right. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, but it seems to me, I remember when we talked about this, it's been a year and a half since we, mm-hmm. we talked about the film itself, but it seems to me that he'd recently lost his mother and, yeah. There, oh, yeah. the de- and the film opens with the death of her mother. And then also he had gone through some marital discord that was similar to this film. Or, and I um, even think some mental health treatment. I yeah, wasn't depression. Institutionalized mm-hmm. for a while, right? So, yeah. so you know, but but and he speaks also later in the in this uh, hour long documentary about his enormous need to connect, uh, to 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 influence people, to, mm-hmm. to to be sort of a surrogate for helping them realize their dreams, their visions, their fantasies. I mean, he he recognizes that film has this powerful effect and role in people's lives. Absolutely. And, and at the same time, he he feels very, very shy, very introverted, very kind of caught up in his own personal struggles and dramas. Uh, so he's got this this kind of dueling nature where he wants to go out there and shake up the world and and communicate to the masses, and yet he's also kind of wants to deal with his own business and and manage his own. Uh, you know, personal feelings and struggles in in a way that uh, you know keeps him safe, and so it's it's a very fascinating portrait of an artist. And in that uh, and that part, I can really relate to because I essentially am an introvert. I really enjoy my time alone. I really enjoy my time reading, but I do find that there is something about the filmmaking process and being on the set and collaborating with various department heads and with the actors that is extremely satisfying for an introverted personality like myself. And certainly it sounds Mm -hmm. like for, for Bergman as well, there's something about that environment that's so uh, energizing creatively uh, the, the interaction with people on the set itself. It's one of the things that I've really missed during this pandemic is, is that sense of showing up in the morning and, and, and figuring it out with a group of people, just figuring out what we're going to do that day. And um, he talked in the film about the fact that he he has his ideas, but that he really uh, welcomes the collaboration of his actors and and allows his actors to help him find the way that a scene should play. I thought it was particularly interesting that uh, sequence where B.B. Anderson is coming back to the apartment um, mm-hmm. and, and just the various ways they went through that from talking about costumes to talking about our blocking uh, and, and he had it in mind a certain way. And he said that ultimately they really did it Bibi's way, <laughs> the way that she wanted to do it, which I thought was very fascinating and, 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 and quite accurate. Sometimes you have an idea and you have to surrender it to the people that you're working with. It's, yeah, it's a negotiation. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's them who's on, on camera in front of the world, so to speak. And, and they have to have sort of a certain comfort, a certain autonomy. And yet as a director, you're expected to sort of give dire- direction and shape and vision and sometimes make the call. So it is, it's this, it's this, this balancing act, this negotiation to let all of the creative talents kind of do their thing. And I, that was another piece of it as well. Just this, this mystery of, 
of how an effective scene or this kind of dramatic culminating moment comes together. It's not always what's on this printed page, the script and the, the actors getting it and reciting their lines accurately. It's it's this alchemy, this chemistry that, uh, as he says, you're sort of fortunate to be there with the camera rolling when these amazing exchanges or moments happen. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And I think, you know, maybe that's one of his qualms with the film The Touch is that, you know, there, there were some powerful moments, but they maybe don't rise to that level of, of so many other kind of all-time immortal type of Bergman moments that uh, kind of suffuse many of his more celebrated films. And so, but he's he's got a career going and he's got to kind of keep the process moving because you just never know when lightning is going to strike and you're going to get that exchange that, that just kind of transcends perhaps even what you had envisioned when you first thought about it. It's interesting because I was thinking back to the film, as you know, I didn't care for it when we, when we talked about it. And one of the reasons why I didn't care for it is that I felt that the, the English uh, did not feel natural to me. And the, but I, I felt that uh, clearly English um, isn't um, uh, a language that B.B. Anderson felt comfortable in with um, the, 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 some of the vernacular, it just, it, it felt that it, it felt a little false to me. And, and so there's that aspect to it. And, and I was uh, uh, interested in seeing that scene again, where she comes in to the apartment, which had no dialogue because it was very powerful and it really did mm-hmm. demonstrate what a phenomenal actress she was. And, and um, I always liked her work very, very much, but I did not like her work in this film because I felt that she was really struggling with English. And I did feel too, from a directorial point of view, uh, that, that he himself was not comfortable with the English. And some of the, some of the dialogue felt very heavy handed to me. And um, um, I also think that if I'm not mistaken, this was their first film in color, if I'm, I'm not sure about that. Uh, no, he had done, well, The Passion of Anna or The Passion of oh, Okay, was all right. Well, then it wasn't. It wasn't. And then, and then All These Women was kind of an early 60s kind of farcical comedy that was shot in color as well. But he was definitely moving into this phase of using color, and, and Sven Nykvist is actually featured pretty prominently in a section of this film. Yeah, I felt, a, I felt some of the choices, you know, look, I mean, this is so easy for me to kind of sound <laughs> like I'm an authority. Yeah. But I did feel that some of the, the use of the color and some of it felt heavy-handed to me as well. So that, that was one of the problems that I had with the movie was the fact that I felt that the the English was heavy-handed and the and the color was a little on the nose in certain scenes. It felt like that there was a there was a um, trying trying to do too much with it in, in certain ways. But I did find the conversations uh, fascinating. The 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 behind-the-scenes conversations when they were talking about you know should you wear those pants or you know yeah. what what. What does uh, this look like when you come in this way? And 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 her comments back to him, like I would never wear those pants with that coat. You know, thing things that, that bad are, taste exactly yeah. unfashionable, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and and conversations that are happening all the time on on uh, sets. I mean, I've had those conversations where an, uh, an actress will show up uh, dressed in an outfit that I just think is totally inappropriate, and so not only am I talking to the actor about it, but I'm talking to the costume designer about it. And it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's not, um, something that, uh, just goes like clockwork 
life right. on the set is a little bit uh, a frenetic experience where when when it does work you're so grateful <laughs> that, yeah. that things kind of fell into place and and i did feel that this this um documentary captured that it captured that sense of the 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 working process in a, in a way that 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 made me um i don't want to say it didn't make me like the film more it didn't make me like the touch more than but it did make me understand how the film that eventually came to be unfolded and and uh, that was uh, an interesting um, experience to see something. I'm always fascinated by these behind the scenes things, uh, particularly if it's something that I really like, but I hadn't watched one uh, about a film that I did not like. This is the first time I've done that where I watched a film that was showing the behind the scenes process of a film that I had a lot of problems with. And I found that to be a very interesting experience because you know, everybody always sets out to do their best work regardless of whether that ends up that way. And you can see them trying to come up with the best version of the film that they were trying to make that they could. And for whatever reason, it didn't gel for me. I think you liked it better than I did, as I remember. Well, I, 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 you know, I tend to give a lot of benefit of the doubt. I mean, I found it interesting and, and definitely fascinating just to, to think about Bergman sort of going out on a limb a little bit here again you know filming in english uh, getting outside of the the sort of the comfort zone of the fence film industry and and uh, he, i think he was working with abc productions so i mean he was he was clearly trying to you know experiment uh, expand his boundaries a little bit maybe pursue some new directions i I'm, I'm sure he went into this film you know hoping perhaps that it could be as successful as many of the films that you know established his reputation uh i know there was some interesting sort of thinking back some of these kind of uh musical kind of video advertising montage things or some little cultural criticism so there's there's interesting stuff i mean things that you didn't ever see uh uh, Ingmar Bergman do ever again. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. In, in that sense, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, a hard rock bands, acoustic album or something like that. Right, right. Kind of trying out some, some styles that don't exactly gel, but it's still cool that we have this, this artifact, these experiments, if you will. Yeah. And I, I did, I did like too this documentary in the sense that it, it did talk a little bit about his process of how he comes to a film oh, yeah. in the first place. And there was another quote I wrote down that I thought was quite wonderful. He said, a tiny thought like that crops up again and again. You wonder why it keeps returning, why it repeats himself, why it repeats itself. And I, I love that idea that the thing that he he talked about with persona the thing he began mm -hmm. with was the the scene of the two women comparing their hands and um uh i found that to be really fascinating because that's that's oftentimes um well I, i'm teaching right now at ucla i'm teaching directing students and i and i also am always kind of uh, fascinated by my own creative process and and I realized that so much of it is intuitive. An idea will just come to you and it'll just keep kicking around in your head until you somehow kind of coalesce around it. And I thought that this uh, documentary uh, captured that um, thought process really well. I thought that was one of the high points of it was listening to him talk about just the way an idea will, will uh, kind of become baked 
in his mind. And mm-hmm. I wondered, I wish he'd talked a little bit about what it was that led him to want to do the, the touch, you know, because he talked about it relative to persona, but he didn't really talk about it relative to this film. And I mm-hmm. was wondering what were the images that, that were kicking around in his head that made him want to make this film. Yeah, it is fascinating to sort of speculate uh, what were those key moments, the, the, the those visionary elements, uh, whether it's a dream that he's you know manifesting in, in kind of a physical reality and sharing with his public, or uh, you know something like I say more intuitive, even more mystical than that. But I, I like I say, I do also enjoy uh, even those more mundane get us from point A to point B. You know, can BB hit her mark when she parks the car in front of the building? And, you know, <laughs> right. And how many times does she have to pull up? And you know, all of those little you know kind of connecting point moments that. Uh, as viewers, we we hardly give a second thought to, but as, as yourself, as a director, this this scene has to achieve its function. And if we have to do it four or five times to get that car right up to the the doorpost or whatever it is, it's like we just got to keep working until we get it right. So it yeah, is, or it is sometimes, or sometimes it's even knowing when to cut bait. Sometimes you just yeah. go, "All right, I tried. It's not going to work as well as I thought." is do I have enough here to, to move on? And yeah. oftentimes there are things. I, I, I recently um, uh, ordered a crane for a shot, and we tried to do the, the crane shot a couple of takes, and I just realized, and, you know, crane is a big expense, but I just realized mm-hmm. this is crazy. I could do this so much easier if I just put the cameras on sticks and just knock the scene off quickly. Uh, at a certain point, you have to decide just okay i'm gonna cut bait now and 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 keep the keep the crew moving forward but that was pretty funny they were out there in the rain and she was uh driving up and felt like she was hitting the mark but uh she apparently her glasses kind of threw her off there (laughs) yeah Yeah, just those little mundane details yeah it was a fun film it was a really fun film it was it was a an enjoyable experience to watch you know there's a couple of there's a couple of really great documentaries. I think they're all on the uh, Criterion Collection uh, website about Ing- Ingmar Bergman. I, I've enjoyed watching um, a couple of others. I did not know about this one, so I was really happy yeah. that, you, that you directed me to it. Well, definitely, and then that's kind of the theme of this episode is kind of some obscurities of some pretty big names that are out there. Uh, we're going to be talking about Agnes Varda, uh, Carol Ballard, uh Krzysztof Koslowski, Luis Benuel, uh, and some others. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. So keep listening in, everybody. Uh, this film can be accessed on the Criterion channel. Of course, if you own the big Bergman box, it's a supplement on the disc that features the touch. I'm not sure exactly what number disc that is, but it's sort of towards the, the last third of that uh, impressive collection, that career-spanning anthology of most of Bergman's major works. Uh, so it's a little bit buried there, but uh, definitely, you know, and I, I do appreciate Bergman putting himself out there you know ingmar bergman makes a movie was a documentary made uh, as he was making winter light uh, of course the making of fanny and alexander is there and there's a lot of other pretty interesting behind the scenes glimpses but this is this is really a, a unique one and because it is um focusing on a film that was really kind of overshadowed and underseen uh, by many people for many years uh, due to its relative obscurity, its lack of box office success, etc. 
it is a unique window into the uh, amazing and impressive career of Ingmar Bergman. So uh, any last comments, Norman, before we wrap this nope. segment up? Nope. I've uh, just enjoyed talking to you about it. And again, I thank you for uh, pointing me to it because it's, yeah. it's, it's always uh, edifying for my own uh, creative process to uh, be exposed to this kind of thing. And I, I, I did enjoy it a lot. So Excellent. thanks so much, David. I'm so happy that you could uh, spend a few minutes with me talking about it. And so uh, we'll wrap it up here and we'll get on to the next thing. So stay tuned, folks. Thanks a lot. Josh Hornbeck to get our second installment of this compilation episode going. We're going to be talking about three short films from 1971, but first let's just say hello to Josh. Welcome back to the show. David, thank you so much for having me. I'm very uh, eager and excited to uh, to jump into talking about these films, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think this is the third one of these that you've guested with me where we kind of do these season-ending miscellaneous grab bag of short films. So I really appreciate you kind of hanging in there with me. Uh, we're going to be going through a little bit of a snapshot of life in 1970-71 is kind of how I would characterize the three films that we're going to be discussing in just a minute here. But let's just check in with you, Josh. Um, how's it been going lately? Uh, we always kind of have a little moment of warm-up and uh, yeah. kind of checking in with each other. So give us the latest. What's happening in your corner of the world? Well, uh, let's see. I, just yesterday, uh, as we're recording this, I just caught up and released all of my October episodes for mm -hmm. the Criterion Channel Surfing podcasts, uh, including a four film conversation with you on the yes. the horror films of 1971 that are on the criterion channel and uh, it felt good to clear the deck of my uh october <laughs> yes. episodes and uh those often uh can loom um during during these covid times my uh my backlog can can get a little a little heavy uh, my workload has been a little heavier than lately in the last uh, month, especially. And so it's been nice to, to catch up a little bit and to be able to get back into getting in some good film viewing and uh, yeah, just uh, enjoying the calm before the next month's episode uh, start to <laughs> record. And uh, I start talking about political cinema with uh, some guests and we uh, begin to dive into some of those, those conversations. Excellent. Well, I'm very intrigued to hear where you go. Uh, absolutely. Always enjoy your program. And I do appreciate your valiant effort to get all those episodes out. I mean, I know just how, from how busy you've been that uh, you were probably feeling just about every free moment with the uh, 
editing, slicing, dicing, and uploading and all of that. So <laughs> I appreciate you getting it together. And it was fun talking with you about those four films yeah. of 71. I won't get into the co- that conversation except to say it was kind of nice to check those four titles off of my list here. Yes, <laughs> and, definitely. Uh, you know, as, as we're kind of wrapping up season three, let's kind of just talk about what we have in front of us today. Uh, the first film is, uh, well, we can go by the original title, El Nafrago de, de la Cal de Providencia, is how it was listed on the back of the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie Criterion DVD number 102. I think it's been kind of rechristened as the Castaway on Providence Street, which is how it's advertised on the upcoming trio of releases or the box set of Luis mm-hmm. Manuel in uh, January of, ne- of next year. So the castaway in the street of Providence, a little kind of a, a glimpse, a little portrait of, of Luis Bonuel by a couple of his friends. Then we're going to switch gears to Christoph Kislavsky's factory, uh, about a 17 minute documentary about factory workers in Poland and their management. And then the last one is going to be Carol Ballard's Seems Like Only Yesterday. Uh, kind of a, well, an interesting film, a, kind of a documentary, kind of an experimental bit going on there. And uh, looking at uh, the recollections of elderly people in the Los Angeles area, including his own grandfather at that time. So those are the three films that we've got. Uh, the only other thing that they really have in common is that they're kind of unclassifiable, undated films that I felt were at least worthy of conversation in the podcast format. So you've had a chance to check them all out, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, the Carol Ballard film is the one that I've seen the most and uh, was the one I'm most eager to uh, sit down and, and chat with you about. The others are ones that I saw there were holes in your conversation schedule and saw you needed mm-hmm. some some people to jump in on. So this will be interesting because I think one of the films is one that I'm kind of lukewarm on. Uh, one really surprised me and uh, I'm still ruminating on and I find that there's a lot to dig into. And then uh, the Carol Ballard, I think, is my favorite of the three. So it'll be uh, fun to talk about with you. All right. Well, let's uh, delay no longer. Let's yeah. just right, right into it. And let's let's start with The Castaway in the Street of Providence or Providence Street. Uh, this is that snapshot of Luis Manuel that I've already kind of summarized in some senses. And let me guess, this might be the one you're a little lukewarm on? Yeah. You know, I, as I was, <laughs> as I yeah. was watching it, you know, I, I'm not sure if it is just kind of where I am right now. I think there is this part of me that is a little lukewarm on these great director bios or um, the, the films in which uh, acolytes and admirers kind of fawn over the great director and the anecdotes. um, There wasn't as much there to really help me dig into who Bunuel was as a person, as a filmmaker into his work. Uh, I wanted maybe a little bit more there than just uh, some amusing anecdotes uh, here and there. And um, the film feels like kind of a hodgepodge of things. As I was doing some research on it, there's not a lot out there about this, this piece. Right. These uh, are, it's, all of these are kind of underdocumented films, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, but when you look at the IMDb listing for this, it's 50 minutes long. And when you're watching the disc, the, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie disc, it has this 
this little note that uh, it was re-edited 30 years after it was originally released and uh, was edited down to 24 minutes. And so they took out all of the contextual clips from Bunuel's films. And I don't know if that would have made it better or more interesting, but this feels in some ways like some of the Fellini Mm -hmm. documentaries, which I think I appreciate maybe a little more because Fellini is Fellini and, you know, Fellini has this kind of, well, he's much more expressive. Yeah. You're actually hearing from Fellini because yeah. he can't hardly shut up from talking when everybody <laughs> asks him a question, right? And but. he's and he and he is he is a Fellini's a one man carnival in himself in some ways, and he, he's he's part of the show. Yeah. I mean, he definitely was very aware of his personality mm-hmm. yeah. and, and his presence, and and he exploited it. He had fun with it. I think he he handled celebrity quite interestingly. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, so, you know, so you give him credit for that, but here you don't really get in touch with Bunuel at no. all. You see an old man mixing cocktails and, and, uh, which is, there, there may be some yeah. charm yeah, in that. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's sort of interesting. I mean, if you just think about Bunuel, the films he's made and, and the career and the, even the life that he had lived. And now there he is, the man himself, you know, <laughs> mixing up a little, little martini. How about that? Yep. You know? So there is a, a little bit of that surrealist tinge you might say mm-hmm. of just kind of the the absurdity or the kind of idiosyncratic view from a distance but you're right he, he's not speaking i mean yeah. he mutters a few words here and there and the anecdotes really are just the the comments of friends and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. moments that linger in their memory yeah yeah i'd much rather listen to an informed critic who's really studied the work talk about the artist if we want to you know spend these minutes yeah. you know dedicating to a little behind the scenes glimpse of of a great director and that's an interesting contrast because norman buckley and i you know had a conversation about the documentary ingmar bergman which actually is a little bit of a warts and all in some ways uh this is very friendly and and folksy i suppose yeah. it gives a little bit of the flavor but yeah what are some other thoughts you have on you it? know i i i think that that the thing that I did appreciate were a couple of the little things about his amusement at the way people try to interpret his films and interpret Mm -hmm. the symbolism in his films. So you get a few little insights here and there that I appreciated. I think the thing that stood out to me the most though, was the way it ends on this note to his uh, long suffering wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, that, that left me wanting more though. Uh, oh, absolutely. Be- yeah. Because there's like an insider quality. Like if you really knew these folks like we do, there might even be much more to the story, but yeah, sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. You just get all of these, these interesting looks that she gives to Bunuel that he gives to <laughs> yeah, her. Yeah. And it's just this, this really intriguing thing that, you know, if I was more of a Bunuel scholar, if I knew more of the story and, you know, and and there's there's more that as I continue to explore his work and as I continue to explore his career, I'm sure I'm going to pick up on more of these things. And maybe coming back to it, I will gain new appreciation for some of the things that are in the, this this piece. Mm-hmm. But this feels like, in some ways, just a collection of home movies and kind of a an insider tribute to a friend and. I think that's lovely. That's that's wonderful, but mm-hmm. it but it doesn't have this kind of staying power for uh, for a, a wider audience. 
Yeah, I think it's this is truly sort of an ephemeral type of supplement in its current edit. I think yeah. if you actually had made good use of certain, you know, kind of iconic scenes from Bunuel's career uh, interspersed, um, that could certainly would have made this much more uh, interesting mm-hmm. to me, somebody who's watched a lot of Bunuel's films over the years and would enjoy just kind of that sort of cut up collage type of quality of some of those you know kind of greatest moments kind of captured again i don't know what was actually selected in those scenes uh that were edited but it, this could have been a rights issue it could have been a you know they just didn't want to take up that space very fascinating off the top of my head speculation what if the you know the new version that's going to be released in january maybe they do have the mm-hmm. rights now maybe they could show the whole unedited uh, film because that would be an interesting like i say sort of a snapshot capsule uh even a recollection for for you know familiar fans to say yeah let's just go ahead and spend an hour you know reliving some of those great moments from those films without having to you know switch the discs around and and go find them yourself so as a a sort of a compilation greatest hits album yeah yeah that would kind of be cool but you don't really get that in this version you you can say it's it's a hodgepodge you know the little uh, religious lampoon with with Bunwell's face and all the religious iconography at the end there little little funny moment mm-hmm. some memorabilia a few few moments of that sort but you're right we can probably move along with this one <laughs> there are much better ways to spend your time whenever that box set finally reaches yes, our shelves yes i'll be curious to revisit it as i yeah. again as, you know i've seen i've seen a handful of his films i've seen discreet charm i've seen uh veridinia and uh some of his earlier films and i'm bel de jour maybe? bel de jour yeah bel de jour yeah. as well mm-hmm. so i've seen i've seen a couple of the the major works and some of the early stuff and so i think as i uh revisit especially with the box set phantom uh, of liberty and uh, exterminating angel i think it'll be interesting to to maybe revisit this in the context especially of those three films yeah and i think understanding just the the life that bunuel lived and and all of the you know the tensions the pressures yep. the economic and cultural stuff he, he's he's certainly not a character on the same kind of explosive level of a Fellini yeah. um, or even a Bergman. Um, but Bunuel's kind of an enigmatic character who made some very interesting, you know, innovations in film, had a lot of influence and is, is definitely a guy to get to know about. So I enjoy the uh, discovery experiences as, as, uh, that you have in front of you. Yeah. Josh. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and switch gears. Now we're going to be talking about a couple, you know, at the time, especially pretty young, obscure, and no particular evidence that they would ever go on to achieve the things that they eventually did. Um, I'm going to talk about Krzysztof Kislowski's factory, uh, which was made in Poland, I think shot in 1970, released or at least dated sometime in 71. I think I've seen it dated both of those years. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is available on The Double Life of Veronique, uh, the beautiful uh, DVD and Blu-ray that Criterion put out some years ago. And, uh, you know, one of Klyselowski's um, late career masterpieces. But it's it's kind of tucked away as a, as a sort of a 17-minute supplement on that disc. And it's the only film that we're talking about today that's available on the Criterion channel at this time as well. Yeah, give me your impressions of Factory. First of all... It- took me a while to figure out where in my collection this one was because yeah you know i was thinking oh this is probably with either three colors or the decalogue that's that's where they've they've put the early kieslowski films 
I actually looked for it on blind chance when oh. I went snooping for it myself, <laughs> just because I thought, well, that's a little bit more, you know, yeah, early. Yeah. But yeah. and and then I was like, wait a minute, it's it's on the double life of Veronique, and it it's really fascinating that this is uh, that they have released these early documentaries. Uh, right away um with one of with i think this is their first kislovsky release and um you're right mm-hmm. it's really fascinating to see the the contrast between uh these very cold realistic films and what kislovsky does in his late career it's the sumptuous beauty yeah. of musicality yeah. and all and i mean uh, right like you know put these in a group you know these two films were never obviously directed by the same person yeah it's indeed they were. it's incredibly fascinating to see that uh so i you know having listened through the complete podcast and their deep dive into kuzlowski's work um there was a part of me that was kind of feeling like this was going to be doing my homework. This is going to be eating my vegetables. This was, this was going to be, <laughs> yeah. this, this wasn't going to be like really enjoyable. And yet, you know, as I sat down to watch this, I found myself absolutely transfixed by this film. Mm-hmm. There is something so beautiful in the way he shoots the factory. Uh, the it's, almost a verite approach to the the workings of a a factory we don't really know what the factory is making at the beginning we just see the the workings of the factory and it cuts between that and the interior of a boardroom as we witness kind of the bureaucracy and the the board members fighting over and squabbling over shortages. And uh, we see all the finger pointing and shifting blame from one person to another, trying to figure out why they can't meet the quotas and why they aren't going to be able to meet expectations. And the contrast is so striking. Um, Mm. It feels like this deeply political film without ever having to editorialize or say anything. Right, he's just shooting footage of what's actually going on. There's no, there's no narrative, narrative voiceover. There's no introduction of the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's very much fly on the wall type of cinema of just what happens to be, you know, occurring right where mm-hmm. the camera's pointing. Yeah, and I love the the arc of how, you know, even though we're, it feels like we're just seeing little uh, kind of bits of dice dissected action on the the factory floor we do by the end get to see all of the steps of making what it is that they make until the final product is rolled off the assembly line floor as well and just this kind of there's this beautiful shot at the end of the the final piece being moved out and I, I still think that there's a lot to parse out in this little 17 minute documentary that uh, I oh, yeah. I didn't I didn't expect to to find myself so drawn into this work. No, it, it is it's very intriguing. It's like this little nugget that kind of draws you in, and I guess um, you know part of it is the way it's shot. You know, yeah. we, we can talk about a group of men sitting around a boardroom and arguing mm-hmm. back and forth, but this camera is like right up in their yes. faces. And so, and, and it's very expressive because even characters who are not speaking, you don't really see, or maybe, or you don't really hear a lot from them, but the way they're wringing their brow, the way they're puffing their cigarette, you know, some people are feeling very in charge and in control because they can push the blame in some other direction and it's not going to bounce back at them. Others are much more uptight and intense because, 
you know, they're just having a hard time securing the product that they need in order to manufacture the goods that the, the, the quotas demand from them. And so they are feeling a lot of pressure, a lot of vulnerability. And if you've, you know, whatever your occupation may be, I think there's just a very interesting capturing of that tension that occurs when you're making real hard you know, decisions, mm-hmm. you're, you're dealing with unfulfilled objectives and the consequences that can come from that. Of course, this is a very industrial setting. It's, of course, in a communist nation where worker productivity and, and you know, all, all of that political context, as well as the pressure of actually getting the thing done and getting other people to cooperate with the plan. And you can, you can roll this out even to the, the higher level of centralized planning, uh, both within Poland and within the larger you know, Soviet bloc and, and how you know, scarce resources had to be allocated in ways that made a lot of people upset and, mm-hmm. and you know it's just you, you you can sort of extract this much larger narrative and 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 series of of events and interactions and real world pressures and forces that created this dilemma that these bosses these managers are all wrestling over and yet at the same time there's there's just this kind of the man-to-man uh competition as you see they're kind of haranguing each other and and uh you know you can get into the particulars of the the problem solving and the steps that they're trying to take to fix this situation but to me it really was the, those emotional dynamics of who can we blame and and how can i kind of make sure my base is covered yep. so that the the wrath doesn't fall down on me yeah and then you switch it over to the workers and and this isn't just factory work where they're just you know tightening bolts and putting things this is you know flashing sharp metal whirling parts and molten steel and, yeah. and flames and smoke and some t- pretty rough conditions and uh, you know uh obviously it's not like a total life or death emergency when you're out on the line but you can see these these guys are dealing with pressures and risks of a whole different order you know they're not sitting in a room smoking and talking back and forth they're their muscles and well-being are a lot more on the line. Yeah. Yeah, the the contrast is so sharp and you know you mentioned those close-ups the there's something mm-hmm. so claustrophobic about the boardroom scenes that it just shows just this constricting almost paranoia. You know, I've uh, uh just a few months ago I spoke with uh Martin Kessler about Czech cinema and mm-hmm. we talked about the ear which I think uh, you covered in an yeah. episode. Yeah. And, yes. uh, you know, just how much um, film in the Soviet bloc used close-up uh, mm-hmm. to to heighten that feeling of being watched, that feeling of paranoia, that feeling of, of uh, dread. And to use that technique within a documentary, Again, a, a documentary that is all, all it is, is just reporting on a board meeting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it know? really is. Yeah. And, and yet it, and yet it still amplifies these tensions. It still amplifies this sense of backbiting and, and everything. I think it's really, really fascinating. And uh, this entire film really feels like it's pointing the way towards Kijlowski's The Scar, which is the first um, theatrical theatrically released feature that he had done about uh, a man who takes over a factory. And again, all of the, the bureaucracy that he has to deal with and all of the backbiting and all of the infighting. And you see the seeds of some of the early work and then 
where that eventually evolves into some of the the great masterpieces that he will eventually do. And uh, I just I love seeing the the ways in which a filmmaker can grow, and you see the seeds of that right here in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, this is it's a pretty impressive start. And again, I I know little of of Kuzlowski's whole life or his outlook that would um, you know lead me to even really understand what his intentions were with this film or, or how it kind of led to future projects. There's a lot of space that I have to fill in between mm-hmm. this point and, and the time in Kishlovsky's career that I'm most familiar with, you know, pretty much from the Decalogue on up, but everything before that is still kind of new territory for me. So I appreciate the, the linkage that you made to the scar. And I do definitely recommend uh, Matt and Travis's podcast there. I do have a link in the show notes to uh, their coverage in episode one, where they, they spoke about this film for a few minutes. So I think he jumped about the 30 minute mark is right when they get into that conversation. <laughs> yeah. If you want to hear what Matt and Travis had to say, and I definitely, you know, tip my hat to them. I think that they have created the comprehensive online go-to resource yes. if you want to yes. you know, deeply uh, immerse yourself in Kozlowski's uh, beautiful cinema. So yeah. excellent. Well, that, that was a good conversation and I definitely recommend people checking this out. It, uh, it also reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Dujan Makaviev and, mm, and uh, yeah. some of his early black and white uh, stuff from the mid sixties, uh, also dealing with factory life in the mm-hmm. Soviet bloc and all of that. So there's some interesting linkages there, but uh, pretty, pretty cool way for Kieslowski to kind of make his presence felt in these early years of the seventies. Let's talk a little bit about now, uh, Carol Ballard and, uh, it seems like only yesterday. And I'm, I'm really glad that you bring in the enthusiasm for this one. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit mm-hmm. and I'm very eager to hear some of your take on it. Um, but first let's just talk a little bit about the director. Carol Ballard is probably the least familiar, least celebrated in, in our circles, at least of any of the other directors we'll be talking about, uh, in this episode. Although I will have to say Carol Ballard's had himself some pretty significant, uh, commercial success and made some films that have done pretty good business and gotten some good artistic recognition, even uh, for the type of movies they are. Um, the black stallion is the criterion title that bears his directorial, you know, fingerprints. Uh, that's a, a nice release here. It's spine number seven sixty five. came out a few years ago. One of those nice uh, family films that you can recommend from the criterion collection, uh, you know, literally a boy and his horse story. And I'm one who would say, I really appreciate probably the earlier sections of the film, the kind of more impressionistic mm-hmm. once it gets into the more conventional, drama it's like okay then it is what it is but um there's some really exquisite moments just in terms of cinematography uh kind of you know the, the vision the power uh, of the, the horse the stallion this magnificent creature the relationship with the child and all of that but uh, well before uh, that film came out in 79 at the beginning of the decade ballard was doing a little bit more experimental stuff and just kind of finding his way probably as a young man looking to break into the industry. Uh, perhaps well-known as a friend of Francis Ford Coppola. They both came out of the, you know, the film school culture of that time, uh, getting started. And uh, Ballard went on to work on Star Wars. And, you know, he, he, he did a, a few other things. He did a film called Fly Away Home back in the early 2000s, I think it was, that I remember seeing with my kids. Uh, so, you know, he's he's had a, 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 by and large, very successful career. Um, but again, if you look at what we have in, own, 
you know, seems like only yesterday versus maybe the films I've just described and alluded to, you know, boy, what's the through line there? So uh, tell me just a little bit about your impressions of Carol Ballard. Do you have a particular take or, or a view of, of his work or a connection with things that he's released? Yeah. You know, I, I was not necessarily, you know, I was a kid when black stallion came out and I was raised on the black stallion. And so I think, you know, when you're, when you grow up with certain films, you either overly, uh, sentimentalize them or you, uh, kind of grow up kind of hating them, you know? And I think that, (laughs) uh, as a kid, I think those early passages were ones that were really boring to me as a kid. And I always Mm -hmm. liked the race and I was, I I always liked the the sequel, the black stallion returns, you know, when Mm -hmm. there's a more definitive action adventure, uh, story. Um, and you know, it was, it was coming back to it when criterion released the, the disc that I realized how beautiful the film really is, uh, and just how exquisite, especially those early passages are. Um, but, you know, the, but fly away home, uh, came out when I was in college and I was in a film class and we actually had to watch it as part of our film class. Uh, Hmm. we, we had a number of films that we had to see as a part of our, uh, assignments and the, the professor, uh, uh, had us go out and see that in, in theaters and, and write, uh, uh, a review of it. And, um, was it just chosen as a sort of a, a popular release at the time? And, yeah, I mean, it was a popular release. Yeah. And he just said, you know, this is a, this is a film that is making use of a lot of these elements that were, um, that we're studying right now. And, and okay. He, so it was a de- directorial exactly. of that as well. Okay, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, again, I, you know, I, I think, you know, when I first was going to have to go see it, I was like, I don't want to see a, kids movie about (laughs) geese why but when i watched it i was i was really impressed and it helped me realize again that there is a a craft and there is a a real sensitivity that you have to have when you're crafting really intelligent and really smart uh family films and it it helped me think through the the fact that you can you can do work for families that is smart and that that isn't appealing to the lowest common denominator and realizing that 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 is what ballard did a lot of his uh more commercial career doing was really really Mm -hmm. interesting um but in watching the black stallion disc and really diving in when criterion released it and watching through all of his shorts um, I was just blown away. I really enjoyed, you know, I think I was on your first year omnibus episode yeah. with talking about rodeo and perils of Priscilla. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I found myself really just intrigued by what he was doing in his early career and how that led him to black stallion. But I think it's this one that stood out the most to me. This is a film that just, I found captured me in a way that I, I was not expecting it. It, it feels like um, a filmmaker really trying to figure out his voice um, and mm-hmm. uh, learn and uh, explore. And I would have loved to see Carol Ballard continue down this path. Uh, obviously he, yeah. he went more the perils of Priscilla rodeo route, but uh, this is still a, a really a really intriguing film and uh it feels more of a chris marker 
essay documentary mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and i just i found it captivating from beginning to end and rewatching it yesterday you know i think when i've watched it originally i i found myself um maybe overly sentimentalizing the stories of these um centenarians uh, mm-hmm. And thinking more about the the meditations on how much things have changed, uh, yeah. and forgetting just how much Ballard uses that to contrast uh, with where we are now, and uh, the techniques that he uses here are just riveting. And uh, there's just there's a lot of really intriguing techniques in the way he uses montage, uh, the the almost assaultive techniques he uses to juxtapose these really um, thoughtful stories to then unleash this barrage of commercials and war footage and um, other imagery to just uh, make us think about where we are and where we've come as a nation and how, um, how broken things are. Yeah, let's just go ahead and summarize it, maybe recapture it if uh, people haven't watched it much recently. But uh, it, to me, it kind of felt like there's like three components that Ballard was kind of intermixing here. And and the, the genesis of this film was a visit I think he had with his grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, who was in the process of turning 100, and who had been in the Los Angeles area since uh, like the 1880s or something like that. So, you know, that's like, you know, since a childhood, basically. Um, and and here's Ballard, you know, just kind of getting the idea he wanted to interview some of these other, you know, long-term residents of the Los Angeles area to get a sense of time and 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 what the city was like, uh, what the settlement was really like mm-hmm. when a lot of them first got there. And over the course of a single lifetime uh, in this moment, 7071, where you've got the Apollo space program, you've just got all of the the technology, even the 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 hubbub of a new decade and and uh, the space age perhaps moving to its next level and other kinds of technology and multimedia and you know global travel and all of the things that we look back to as 50 years to 1970 now and say yeah life was a lot more you know simple back then or maybe you know even <laughs> not primitive but you know low tech compared to the world we live in now but but at that point you know there there's a real sense of modernity just kind of running rampant and the advances and that new technology are just going to be compounding themselves. And in many ways they have, but that's the, that, that's the one piece there. And he's just getting these reminiscences. So you've got the, 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 the contrast of the modern times mm-hmm. and you got folks talking back to when Los Angeles really was just almost like a pioneer settlement or a, you know, a modestly growing city. And then you've also just kind of got, this this culture this kind of media reality that that everybody's living in the advertising those montages that you talked about these rapid cut-ups and it it's quite a uh kind of just a bit of a mind bender when you start seeing all the all these sounds and, and images mixing and colliding and then the next thing you know here's little benevolent gray-haired granny talking about how they used to barter you know animals back in the good old days when we were all just one big neighborhood community so you're right he could have just kind of stuck with that let's gather these reminiscences of these sweet old folks and and some of the stories are cheerful and and sweet and endearing others are a little bit more about how tough life was and what kind of situations and some of them were just reflecting 
the marvel of wow what what all has happened but there's there's certainly a melancholy tone to many of those those conversations that he has with the older folks mm-hmm. and so this this little snapshot of of so many different uh, sort of elements of life coming together at this point in time you know what do you think ballard's objectives were i mean he he could have made a much more conventional narrative type of documentary uh but he kind of went a little experimental um uh, with that he obviously found it pretty intriguing and successful, but where do you, how do you see him, you know, pitching this to an audience? Who's he trying to connect with here? You think? You know, I, it it strikes me that this this feels in some ways like the commercials are often intercut with then shots that lead us into um, John Wayne westerns, mm-hmm. in which we see John Wayne killing a bunch of people, mm-hmm. then we go back into commercials and then we go straight into Vietnam war footage. Yeah. And there's this progression in a lot of these things. And I think that part of what Ballard is, is doing here is showing this, this progression and showing the ways that America has changed over these hundred years, but also showing the linkages between um, kind of American consumerism and capitalism and, the the violence and the the ways that they're inextricably linked with the the violence in american imperialism and the ways these things are all kind of interrelated we have the stories Mm -hmm. of the exploitation of chinese immigrants they're they're just they're just there they're they're sitting there they're not we don't dig into them too deeply um but it's they're they're talked about we have um these other other moments where we'll see um shots of um uh farms or of um technology that could have been you know a hundred years old and yet the soundtrack is the soundtrack of the the apollo rocket you know, and and the the ways in which he links modern technology with past technology through sound is really fascinating as well. Yeah, yeah. So so Ballard's techniques as an mm-hmm. editor and and even just the, the conceptualization of of this kind of elaborate you know collage of ideas. I mean, you know, I, I guess I was still yeah. asking that question: Who's he? Is this like for a festival audience? I mean, it, I I really like the the aesthetic, the political vibe I get from it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that critique you know and 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 that sort of passive interview technique just let the folks talk about what they have on their mind and don't prompt them don't push back just let them get talking and and keep the recorders rolling there but you know so i'm i'm just trying to think is was this a, an audition for other types of thing was he kind of because i'm just trying to think where where would this film actually yeah. be shown you know uh, or was this more of a i don't know this is a, an art house type of project uh, i don't know just kind of yeah, you know, it's, it strikes me. Yeah, as I was talking about this with my wife last night, and we were we were musing uh, on things. You know, it it strikes me as kind of a young the project of a young hippie try, mm-hmm. trying <laughs> yeah. trying to to make his essay to 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 make his statement. And yeah, there are some sort of head yeah. trip elements to some of those, you know, quick cuts and all of that. Yeah. Even some Kiana Scotsy type of stuff, yeah. you know, with some of the the freeway mm-hmm. traffic and all of that. And and, and I I wonder if 
you know, again, we don't have a whole lot of information on how this was released. There's all of these films are so underdocumented uh, that we're talking about mm-hmm. right now. But what I've been able to gather just from the the brief interview on the disc, uh, this is a, a project that he had wanted to to tackle. It took him five years to make. Um, so it's it's a passion project of his. Mm-hmm. But you know, he had just made a couple of educational films. And this feels like more of a personal project and less of a, uh, a piece that he was making to, to do anything. So, uh, you know, my, my assumption is this is probably something that made it to festivals that made it to maybe an art house circuit, maybe a, um, maybe on, on something on those levels at that time. Yeah, maybe even just showed to, you know, made to be shown mm-hmm. locally or within the industry as he's kind of refining his techniques, trying some things. I'm sure probably didn't cost mm-hmm. a lot to make, you know, crew for you know filming the the elderly folks. But a lot of this is found yep. footage, and he's just probably maybe one of the reasons that's not on the Criterion Channel is that you know he's using a lot of copyrighted yeah. material that other people might have uh, ownership of. But at this point, they're going to let it yeah. go. So. Yeah, well, any any other kind of you know, insights? I, I highly recommend it. And again, this you know, the Black Stallion may not be one of those essential must-have discs for a lot of people who uh, aren't completist collectors like mm-hmm. you and I. Or if you don't have children, or if you don't have a fond particular memory of this film, you might say, "Yeah, do I really need that?" But it's yeah. a good disc. It, it is it is a very solid film. I mean, I do have you know kids and now grandchildren, and and so this is probably one we will pull out one of yeah. those days, uh, somewhere down the line. But the these early films by Ballard really do show that, you know, he's, he's got some interesting talent and perspective mm-hmm. and probably chose for a variety of reasons to go the way that he did. Certainly you know, a good commercial uh, career where you're making work that you can feel proud of. There's not a whole lot to scoff at and uh, with that kind of an outcome. So it seems like a cool enough guy to yeah, me. Yeah. And, and again, it just, it, it feels very much in keeping with what was going on in 1971 with these mm-hmm. these filmmakers mm-hmm. trying to push the boundaries uh trying to figure out how to use their art for political purposes and figure out how to how to use film in the medium to to speak to people about political issues and i i like that it's not heavy-handed i like that it's not uh, overt. There's one shot in particular that I find really, really compelling. You know, the most of the people that he interviews, except for there's one short clip of an interview with a uh, older black woman, but most of the centenarians he talks to are white. But there is this mm-hmm. one clip where we see young uh, children of color playing and looking at the television and we, we see all of these kids and you get the sense that Ballard's trying to explore and, and look at this idea that this next generation is going to be more diverse and is going to look different than this older generation as well. And you just, you get the sense that he's, he's trying to explore a lot of ideas without having to, again, um, have voiceover narration without, like in the Kieślowski piece without having to say uh, anything in the, some sort of heavy handed text that overlays it. And he's trying to use the editing and trying to use the craft of filmmaking to make his statement. And I, I find that really compelling to, to see how filmmakers were trying to use the craft to make their statements. 
Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, there was kind of a trend in, in book publishing at this time of, you know, kind of lots of graphics and mm. texture and, you know, text, you know, words pointing in different directions. I've got books like my book, Minster Fuller and Timothy Leary, that really are just kind of kind of jazzing up the yeah. format of the media a little bit. And I think that's what, kind of what's happening here, too. And I really do like that kind of radical, young, experimental you know, head who's kind of putting the film together and juxtaposing images and kind of messing with our perceptions just a little bit to get a point across. But yeah, you know, as I was even thinking about it earlier today, like, oh, okay, how am I going to summarize this? Because there's there's so yeah. many ideas. There's just lots and lots of content there, and uh, that's what's going to make it rewatchable. It's it's fairly short, like fifty five minutes, uh, but there's a lot to ponder there. And uh, I'm sure when you watch it a second or third time, uh, things are going to hit you yeah. that maybe sailed past you because of the rapidity of, of the flow, especially in those kind of yes. more editorially <laughs> creative uh, yes. sections. So yeah, definitely, definitely a cool, uh, cool one to talk about and a nice uh, opportunity to bring this obscurity up for a little bit of closer examination. Definitely. Definitely. All right, Josh. Well, I've had a great time yeah. talking with you. Thank you for getting us a little further down. We, I'm going to have you back on some future segments here as we get a few more guests cool. involved. Uh, so stay tuned. We've got some interesting mind-bending stuff coming up as the episode progresses. So thanks for hanging in there, folks. All right. Well, uh, Josh and I just finished up our conversation through the magic of editing. Uh, what was a few days ago now, it's, uh, you know, we're picking it right back up as we get ready to uh, welcome Robert Taylor into our little conversation. Robert, how's it going, man? I am great. Life is good. I'm planning on having a fantastic <laughs> next four years at the very least. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? And, and <laughs> sure. And, and you're having a good one too, Josh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm having a very good day. It's a, Super. it's a nice, it's the news has been good and, uh, uh, I am, uh, cautiously optimistic. Well, let's go ahead and put all these uh, cryptic comments into context in case you haven't been paying attention to the news recently. A few things happened today. Today happening to be November 7th, 2020, just a little bit after 5 p.m., the day that uh, after all the votes were tallied, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are all uh, set to become our next president and vice president of the United States. And boy, what a process it's been. Uh, we maybe don't need to get into the whole you know, analysis of the election, the campaign, and, and uh, the dramas of the past several days. But as I've already heard, you guys are feeling pretty good, and so am I. I'm very excited about the uh, the prospects, especially considering the alternatives if the scenarios had <laughs> gone a bit differently. But maybe we could just talk a little bit about 
about it. I, uh, again, we're going to be talking about uh, Peter Weir's Holmesdale, uh, kind of apropos of nothing that's going on in the news today. But <laughs> we're going to go ahead and stick with the plan of talking about this early film of his from 1971. Maybe talk a little bit about Peter Weir himself, uh, who's had a very interesting and very successful career. Uh, maybe give a few of our takes on him overall, and then we'll look at this uh, obscure little nugget from uh, the earliest days of his uh, time as a director. But uh, let's go ahead and just get the uh, you know get the big news out of the way. Um, yeah, Robert, tell us a little bit about your response and and uh, where you are. Are you still in Ohio these days? Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just just to clarify the geography of it all. But, I will uh, say yeah. the county I am currently in, Summit County, is one of the only blue counties that yeah. was in the final tally. So there is that. <laughs> well, so you're among friends. But yeah, so tell us a little bit about your... Uh, I don't know, your feelings, your thoughts, your, uh, you know, just kind of your response to the the dramatic news of this morning. I mean, I am over the news for all of my dear, dear friends, uh, family, loved ones who uh, have fought so hard these past four years to uh, create normalcy again in our great country. Uh, I am looking forward to uh, what's his name? being uh hitting the exit sign as one were uh why even bother spending time speaking his name at this point um i did a little happy dance earlier i have been very much enjoying all of the uh you know it's a wonderful historic event i have a feeling josh is going to have some fantastic very epic words that will touch our hearts make us cry i on the other (laughs) hand have been watching the uh the Avengers recut with all of the uh, <laughs> Democrats' faces from Twitter and the Sister Act 2 recut with Stacey Abrams uh, making Georgia sing on a loop for the past hour and a half. So that's been uh, my afternoon. Also, <laughs> a lot of dancing. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to have a little section of uh, memes and links in our show notes just to capture the moment there. So <laughs> send me a few of your favorites, Robert, and we'll uh, we'll put them there for posterity. Yeah, well, Josh, tell me what was and oh, well, Robert. First of all, where were you when you heard the news? Were you just kind of hanging at home, watching the TV, cruising the net? What was I was walking uh, outside, just doing a little hike around the block, and then I started to hear these little like air horns going off, and I was like, huh, <laughs> that's a little yeah. odd. Yeah. And then uh, I checked my phone, saw that it happened, and so I walked very quickly home, triple-checked everything. And then once even Fox News admitted it, then I started the happy dance. (laughs) Excellent. All right, Josh, go ahead and catch us up on uh, how everything broke. And, of course, you're out on the West Coast, so this was a little bit earlier in the morning as far as what Robert and I experienced. But uh, give us the tale. Yeah, I was still asleep uh, when <laughs> the news broke, and uh, you know, I, I uh, my wife and I joke a little that we're on Beijing time since she works for a Chinese education mm-hmm. company, and uh, so we have our our schedules shifted pretty late for the most part. Uh, so uh, I was sleeping in a little. It's the weekend, and uh, woke up and just kind of checked as I have been compulsively checking every time I wake up. Uh, oh yeah, each night just to see what the new the new count is and uh yeah it was really really encouraging to see that it had finally been called as we've been you know in the wee hours of the night and early hours of the morning seeing the 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 lead um mm-hmm. 
grow. And that's been really, really exciting. Well, I and think even some yeah. controversy about when it, would this actually be called, because it seemed like those margins had been called in other races, but obviously there's a lot hanging on this particular one. And so we you were can just, make the argument, right? We were sitting here biding our time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was proud of that one. I was so proud. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was painful. That was painful, Robert. But you know, I I, I think that you know it it was a you know for me I, I'm you know I'm glad that they took their time, you know, and and I know that just like you know four years ago, it you know it felt like this should have been a blowout. Uh, it yeah. felt like this should have there shouldn't have been the margins that there should have. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of. Um, you know, I mean, we've see, had four years to see how this person has governed. Um, but as I was uh, speaking with my wife about this yesterday, I actually think that the the tightness of it is actually a really good thing um, because I think what it does is it reminds us that even though we have have eked out a victory here for progressive causes, um, I think it reminds us that the the bigotry and and all of the things that Trump um, helped uncover during his four years, that those things are still there mm-hmm. and that uh, the, 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 the divisiveness here is still there. And we have a lot of work to do. We have yeah. a lot of work to do. I think that if this had been a blowout and even now I still, I see, among some of the 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 more privileged friends in my liberal circles, I, I see this kind of um, this tendency to go, "Okay, great, we've we've won. Now we can just rest easy." Mm-hmm. But I think that there is this. I think we need to remember that that um, we have a lot of work to do to to guard the rights, the protections for for anyone that doesn't have those rights. Um, that, that can have those rights taken away the next time a uh, uh, someone with Trump-like tendencies can come in. Yeah, uh, I mean, the next person who uh, takes that approach may be a lot more tactful, a lot yep. more smooth, a lot more uh, able to, you know, play yeah. within the, the norms while still enacting pretty vicious policies. But yeah. you're right, this has been a massive reality check, the yeah. idea that racism and all the other you know negative bigoted isms out there would sort of just be throttled as people learn and grow and become comfortable with people unlike themselves whatever the demographic may be Uh, unfortunately all those worst tendencies have have been actually quite amplified yeah and, and brought to the surface and fortified for the future you know there's a whole base of resentful uh trump supporters who are not going to feel like they've actually been uh, repudiated. They're going to, you know, buy into the idea that it's yep. been stolen and, and that the, this was a big cheat and they're just going to probably double down in some ways. Now there will be a, a, a middle, a more moderate portion mm-hmm. of the Trump supporters, the Trump voters, I guess you should say the people who just, because they're Republicans or whatever the reason may be. Um, and so we'll see how that kind of realignment happens as we get into a a new era but it's still very precarious and there's still a lot of um well there's just a lot of ugliness that's been revealed um even among people who we might otherwise think are are solid fine folks but uh you're right that the conversation is not over but it is a big sigh of relief it is that we just don't have to put up with another four years of an even more emboldened 
yeah. uh, Trump and his administration. So, uh, you know, let the healing and the reconciliation begin, but let's do it with eyes wide open, yeah. knowing what it is we're dealing with and, um, you know, finding common ground where we can and actually getting down to the serious work of addressing significant, massive problems that our society is dealing with that are way beyond horse race politics or, you know, who's up, who's down and, and, uh, you know, check out the latest scandal or controversy. There, there's yeah. real pain, real suffering and hardship. And, and I just really do, you know, hope and pray that we can find our way to, to, to make meaningful progress on a, any number of important issues. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to tell you where I was at, I actually was on a, a nice outing. It's an absolutely beautiful day here in Michigan. Uh, so my wife and my granddaughter, Sylvia, and we you know, called our daughter to up and she came along. We went to the, uh, the Frederick Meyer Gardens. Uh, this is a nice botanical garden and sculpture park uh, on the east side of Grand Rapids. And we had already planned it just because it was a nice day. It was a Saturday. So I got my messages kind of as the little push notifications coming through. I messaged a few folks, but uh, really I was just in this beautiful fall environment kind of uh taking in every so often I'd stop, you know, we'd stop and have a, you know, sit down just to kind of rest from our walking and exploring, check the messages and uh, just tapping into the vibe of elation and relief and, and celebration that there's a lot of great things that, that come with this uh, presidential victory. Uh, you know, the symbolism and, and the stories of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, and uh, you know, what they represent and, and how they speak meaningfully and connect to so many people. So, um, you know, I'm just kind of going to sit down after we're done with the podcast tonight and actually watch some of the stuff on TV and, and kind of get a deeper look of all what's been going on. But it's been quite a day and I've just had a splendid time of it with my beautiful hmm. two-year-old granddaughter uh, out in, out in a, you know, not exactly nature because it's all very cultivated, but it was a beautiful a fall afternoon to uh, you know watch history unfold a little bit of a distance. It truly has been really a day of heroes for all of us today, really. And you know what better, more fitting movie to discuss <laughs> than Homesdale, yes, yes. the nineteen seventy one Australian film by Peter Weir. <laughs> well, thank you for that transition, Robert. Uh, yeah, Great segue. <laughs> smooth as silk right so let's talk a little bit about this and as, as, as we often do i think this is uh, the first time we've discussed peter weir on this podcast now i have done a podcast on picnic at hanging rock his film from a few years later and where you can find this film that we're talking about as a supplement on the disc um otherwise i don't know really where else you would find it it's not streaming on the channel it's on youtube uh, it, it is on YouTube. Oh, just as a straight up YouTube uh, clip there. Is it pretty much the same version? Anything yeah. significantly <laughs> different as far as now? Okay. It yeah. So, Robert, do you have the disc? Uh, yes. Uh, 40 I seconds have. <laughs> okay. Well, so, Robert, you've kind of you've kind of kicked it off. Do you want to give us a little summation of the film and, and uh, just kind of get us into the conversation? Uh, it, it, it seems to be taking a bunch. It's a 50 minute short film thereabouts. It's like 48 minutes and it, it seems to be taking a lot of different uh, avenues from other films. Like, and then there were none uh, uh, pardon me, psycho most mm, dangerous sure. game. Mm -hmm. It's about a bunch of people who are going to a hospice center on probably a remote Island. It could be a hunting lodge, something like that. Uh, we've got a rock singer who is also a butcher, who is my favorite. We've got like, uh, an octogenarian. We've got, uh, an older woman who is attempting to reclaim her youth. And the guy who runs the place, aside from having a huge H on his name, appears to be 
quite mad and has a couple of very, very odd ideas for outings, uh, team building, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, it seems sort of like a precursor to uh, Nexium, which of course is oh, yeah. a uh, which is a shout out to The Vow on HBO, recently <laughs> renewed for okay. season two. Okay, so yeah, there's a couple other characters as you were kind of listing off some of the the archetypes, even if you will. You've got the soldier, yeah, and you've got this kind of uh, I guess she's a little bit of a. Uh, I don't know, a, a, an attractive young woman. She's maybe trying to make it into show business. She's She's got the looks and, and the features to kind of, you know, get men's attention and all of that. And then you got uh, Morphe, the uh, kind of, I don't know if he's not really the protagonist, but in some ways he's a sort of the, the other than the the kind of manager of this little strange resort, Morphe is the kind of guy who's, though the whole story ends up pivoting around him, he's a little bit of a schlub. There's nothing really specifically noteworthy or attractive about him he's just a very average plain guy kind of the, the most featureless of this this, this little crew of, of tourists slash passengers guests at this resort um yeah that's that's kind of the setup there josh maybe you want to pick it up from there uh, what was your kind of assessment of this film and and have you seen it before did you have much of an opinion about it yeah you know this is one that i i hadn't seen before and uh I, I kind of feel like we're let's uh, Mr. Mr. Malfrey be our, our window into this bizarre world. And uh, he becomes our viewpoint character in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it strikes me that the, the guests that are coming to this lodge, it's almost as though they're there for some sort of therapy that they're there for some sort of, as some for in some way to to face their darker impulses their mm-hmm. their their deepest fears or their darker desires and there's a lot of kind of loosely connected scenes and sequences that are kind of like days in the life of their their stay there but really it's Malfrey's story that we follow as as he seems unable to really fully enter into the activities there and the the director of the the institute uh kind of chides him as if he was a schoolboy and uh that dynamic becomes this really intriguing almost sadomasochistic uh, relationship that propels the narrative forward until we get to the end. Uh, and yeah, I, I found this to be an utterly fascinating piece uh, that, you know, having seen most of Weir's early work, you know, this definitely leads into things like the cars that ate Paris, which uh, is again, kind of has this horror tinge to it. This kind of macabre, uh, black comedy, but mm-hmm. it doesn't at all lead you to think that this is going to be the same director that is going to go on to do Picnic at Hanging Rock or uh, some of the later works that he does. Uh, but I just I find Weir to be such a fascinating director because he would do these such tonally different films. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Peter Weir before we maybe get back into dissecting Holmesdale. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting. I went through his filmography, and I can't really say that I'm a well-researched, uh, you know, study of, of Weir as far as 
kind of understanding what what are the thematic elements that that kind of might make him more of an auteur or uh you know how he got from one point to another over the course of his uh, very successful career i think of him and i think of you know picnic at hanging rock i think of the truman show uh dead poet society i mean he's really he's had a very successful career doing a lot of films that in, uh, reached a pretty uh, respectable mainstream audience in their in their times over the years. He's not really done a whole lot lately. I think the last big thing he did was Master and Commander, and then there was another one called The Way Back. But Robert, maybe you've got a take on Weir as a director. I, my hunch is that you might be a little bit more well versed in not only the films he's made, but uh, how he's gone about it, and just the arc of his uh, achievements as a director. Well, it seems to me like there are two. Uh, sort of conc- they push back and forth on one another there is the need for escape and the need to stay and i feel like many of his films either deal with wanting to stay wanting to escape look at witness look at mosquito coast uh look at dead poet society and that seems to be a theme that he goes back and forth with back and forth with and it's interesting to see that sort of start here right Hmm. The guests are there until they desperately want to escape, except for the guy who seems to want to escape, finally deciding to stay. So in that way, it's very interesting. I also am fascinated with Josh brings up a good point about the cars that ate, the cars that ate Paris, because this and that seem much more Lynchian and much yeah. more disturbing, dark, and with a different sense of humor than his other films. It was fascinating to watch this because it felt in many ways like a different filmmaker than and of course filmmakers grow they mature they take huge strides in between movies i don't expect that we are at nine in 1975 when he made picnic at hanging rock is the same guy who made the truman show however this feels very very different than the guy who would even make picnic at hanging rock mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it seems like he he refined his ability to speak to you know broader audiences and, and connect with a, a very popular consciousness. And even while he's maybe challenging or or introducing you know the masses, so to speak, to ideas that um, you know maybe they hadn't quite considered before, he, he has a way of delivering it that that hits the nerve and 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 generates that positive word of mouth and popularity and. And enduring rewatchability. I mean, I think about the Truman Show in particular as one that uh, meant a lot, not just to me, but to, even to my kids, you know, and it, it's such a mm-hmm. sort of a prophecy of the media saturated environment that we live in nowadays. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable film in, in that respect. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we can kind of move back to Holmesdale itself and, and kind of, uh, you know, some of the seeds that we see planted here, uh, because I think there are some things about the movie. There's lots of interesting ideas. There are some pieces that I don't think work as well. And I think it's just because I, I wasn't sure, especially after the first time watching it, what were the stakes or what is the value of whether or not you get to stay on this island? And, and what you alluded to, Robert, this kind of sort of therapeutic, uh, you know, facing your your demons. I think, Josh, you had made some of yeah. those points as well. That, that you know, that there, there's this kind of encounter group thing going on, like, uh, which, again, early 70s, that was, that was kind of a, a big deal. You know, group therapy, primal scream, all of the sort of quasi, you know, new age type of culty things where people were putting themselves really strenuously on the line with these kind of 
you know, simulations, but with some real life tangible stakes. I mean, there's, there's almost kind of a horror show aspect to this of, of a kind of psycho terror and drama, you know, with these kind of mock killings and enacted, you know, rituals and, and, and things of that sort, this kind of sacrificial scene where after Malfrey kind of messes up during this little talent show, he, he can't quite play along and, and they start you know, you, you wonder, are they actually going to disembowel this guy or, or behead him mm-hmm. or what? And it's kind of a setup for the, you know, the grim conclusion, which maybe we should be respectful and avoid complete spoilers there. Um, because this may not be one that uh, people would listen to this episode have, would naturally have already seen. Uh, I think it's worth checking out, but I, I also feel like you're you're dealing with a guy who's still working with pretty limited budget, uh, still learning the mechanics of how to tell a story effectively so that everything that he wants to deliver is kind of laid out there accessible to people who, you know, are just trying to figure out what is this weird environment that we've stumbled into and, and how to make sense of it. You know, the beginning, this we're the boys of Homesdale, Homesdale has this kind of, you know, very Aussie type of, uh, you know, musical kind of style to it. It almost feels a little Monty Python-ish also from this same time. Um, and so are we looking at a comedy here? Yeah, we are. There's a there's a dark element here, but it's never really made clear. What is this hospice? I, mean, I hear the word hospice and I think of that's where people go to die. But I think they're probably using the word in more hospitality, like a resort or something like that. So it may just be a semantic or a vernacular application of that word. But yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, do you, do you feel like the story is told as effectively as it could? Are there some things that could have been maybe laid out a little bit more clearly? You know, for your you know, I, I think the thing that strikes me most is I think it's a function of, of the length of the film. Um, I think this is, is one of those times where it, you know, we, we probably could have used another 20, 30 minutes to help round out the story a little bit more. Um, uh, I think that these kind of medium length films that are, um, you know, 50 minutes long, they're not quite a full short film, but they're not quite a feature film either. Uh, they exist in this, this space where it's really hard sometimes to, um, to tell a complete story and to hit all your plot points. I think he's really does a really great job of creating the atmosphere of creating the, the, the eeriness that he's trying to do. And he's got some great scenes and great sequences and some really compelling performances there. But I do agree that there's that, that sense of because there is enough of a narrative there to get you intrigued as to what's going on. We need just a little bit more to, to follow um, what actually is happening. Why, why are people coming here? What, what are the stakes for each of these people? Um, we're only getting little bits and, and little revelations. And I think Malfrey especially is the one that um, we need just a tiny bit more, especially by the end. Yeah, yeah, because his his fate is kind of the punchline, if you will, yeah. of the film. But we really don't know where he comes from. You know, he, his dog Sniffy died yeah. uh, from the rickets. Uh, that's kind of played up for laughs. Uh, and and like I said, he's just kind of a, a mediocre bloke who doesn't really have anything to, of a distinguishing characteristic about him. And he's kind of ridiculed for that by the uh, you know at least more the the cruel or base hearted 
members of this group who kind of, you know, mock and jeer at him and, and, and make him feel like a worm. And of course, the manager, the, the boss guy, really kind of doubles down and, and, and lays it on pretty thick there in this kind of humiliating way. Um, yeah, Robert, you know, you're, you're the screenwriter here. Uh, are, are, can, you, can you come up with some structural improvements or some uh, constructive criticism that you might want to, you know, give to the young Peter Weir as he's putting this project together? <laughs> well, I echo what you guys said. I feel like it's a little bit too much to be a full, to be a snack, a little bit too little to be a full meal. I also have a theory. I have a very specific theory that it was filmed chronologically. Here is why. I feel like the sequences at the beginning are almost purposely nods to other filmmakers. The psycho Mm. shower scene is the most obvious. And that's when I sort of sat in my chair and I was like, oh, God, is it going to be 50 minutes of this? But (laughs) the opening sequence when they are traveling is not quite a shot for shot recreation of Claire's. And then there were none, but it's pretty damn close. And then the further the movie gets, the more the running time goes, the more strength I think Weir has as a storyteller. The scenes become more malleable. The There's more for the actors to sink their teeth into. He seems to get mm-hmm. a better handle on the characters. But if he had filmed it chronologically, earlier Peter Weir, who didn't quite know what he was doing, didn't have the opportunity to do the setup that... Uh, both you, and David and Josh, both of you had mentioned missing. Mm-hmm. And because yeah. of that, you know, the ending is robbed of the impact that it might have had, if only for another two or three minutes of setup right there at the beginning. Yeah, and I, I would imagine this is probably not a film that there's a lot of alternate takes or outtakes yeah. or extended scenes or anything like that. This, this very much feels like he got a a grant of some sort. This was kind of an ex- considered a quote unquote experimental film, uh, probably through some kind of government agency or a, an arts foundation or something of that sort that says, okay, you've got some talent, go ahead and make a movie. And, and this is what we have to show for it. So I, I would say he, he himself probably would, would recognize and readily acknowledge that this is much, very much an apprentice work, uh, especially in comparison to the, you know, very well polished and, and, you know, as I've already said, highly successful films that he's most famous for. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, journey into the roots of, uh, you know, of a pretty impressive director. That um, said, there are a couple like outstanding sequences that tell us about I some th- of the things that stick with you. My, my two favorite sequences are the first is when the guy is attempting to shoot the, uh, the porcelain things being tossed in the air and just shoots the guy immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, what's his name goes over and says, oh, he's dead. Don't worry about it. Just go back to your room. It's fine. Don't ask no questions. Let's move on. And I loved the black comedy in several of the lines. Like I said, I think my favorite character was the butcher slash rock star. And yeah, yeah, how excited he was to talk about his band. Uh, He's a wild bloke, you know. (laughs) Yes, a wild bloke. And uh, the woman asks, oh, tell me a little bit more about your band. Are they anarchists? Who are they? And he's like, no, they're all butchers like me. Oh, how I laughed. I laughed (laughs) so hard. I also thought the anarchy of them 
having the planes that were attached to the little firecrackers yeah, and trying to light yeah. them with the candles. If that felt like nothing else in Weir's filmography in a good way. It Aussies felt like something commies there, yeah. Yeah, it felt fresh, interesting. It was visually engaging. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I really enjoyed the um on Malfrey's first night where we get this interesting soundscape. And the yeah, yeah. the uh, lantern that's kind of floating on its own, it creates this really uh, eerie atmosphere that sets the tone for the rest of the film, that keeps you on edge for all of the proceedings. And I think that that, that to me also, uh, you see him learning to build his skill as a filmmaker. And and I think that it's, it's those techniques that he's going to employ in... Uh, films like The Cars That Ate Paris and even in Picnic at Hanging Rock, where even though it's a much different type of film, he's still using a lot of these these cinematic techniques to create an air of mystery and this kind of haunting atmosphere. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that you can see him beginning to to stretch himself in some of these, these sequences with sound, with the ways in which he uses framing and angles and uh, lighting. So I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting things within the film, even if the narrative isn't, as successful. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that's the challenge with short films. You know, we've been watching a lot of short films and and talking about them for this episode. I just did an episode of channel surfing where I talked about an omnibus film with a couple of, um, uh, you know, short films by master filmmakers. And I always love omnibus films because they're, they're tough to do because Mm -hmm. you get to see master filmmakers try their hands at short films and you can see how difficult it is and and what a different skill set it is to take uh, a narrative that you might normally stretch into an hour and a half, two hours, and try to condense it into 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, I love omnibus films if it's the filmmaker at the height of his powers, as yeah. opposed to early on. Like one of my favorite like comfort food films is Paris I Love You. Mm. Right. It it mm-hmm. just makes me happy seeing like uh, the Coen brothers, Wes Craven. They're very exciting. That said, David, you and I have recorded numerous short film things at this point. I think mm-hmm. of what was the grandmother was, I think, in the oh, season yeah, finale Lynch. of yeah, yeah, yeah from yeah, last yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think this is probably the best, even though it's 50 minutes, the best short film that mm-hmm. you and I have covered together <laughs> so far. <laughs> uh, despite, like, for the first five to six minutes, I truly was like, oh, crap. But then... <laughs> But then I genuinely, once you get in the same mood as the film, I think this is a very, very mood-based movie. Mm. It's kind of a good time. I mean, well, yeah, it's it, got it takes its problems, you in some unpredictable. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it, it's full of surprises and twists, and and it is, yeah, and you're you're seeing some some fascinating ideas getting worked out there. So, yeah, I definitely feel it's it's worth the while. It's a good inclusion. It definitely rounds out the uh, very deluxe package of picnic at hanging rock, especially if you've got the one with the, with the book uh, included, that's uh, that's one of those nice single title early spines that criterion really, you know, knocked it out of the park on. So, and you have to give credit to these filmmakers for putting their early stuff out there. I, if any of my three short films that I made at AFI ever saw the light of day, 
I would die. <laughs> I can't imagine like what I yeah. would do <laughs> if Criterion was like, hey, we got the rights to um, whatever I made it. I would have just started to cry on the phone. So good on <laughs> Weir for being a yeah. good sport and putting his voice out there like he did. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. And I'm sure he's got all the self-consciousness and oh my gosh, I can't believe how we had to use that shot or whatever. I'm, I'm sure he's very aware of things that he would have done differently if he had his druthers. But uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's a great uh, opportunity to, to, you know, explore the early work and, and kind of see uh, what it led to and, and even paths that uh, maybe he chose not to take in, in later films. It so. also seems like Homestale is the perfect location for us to send our current president to once January comes around. What do you guys think? <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. You know, a non-extradition treaty there. I mean, he's safe and secure and he can work his out his demons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a pretty excellent note to wrap up this conversation on. Always a pleasure to talk with you guys, Josh and Robert. So we'll be getting back into it uh, after the break with uh, some films by Hollis Frampton. So keep listening, folks. <laughs> segment i said that we'd be getting into the films of hollis frampton and we will be getting there shortly but first let me just drop this quick interlude into the mix as i spend a few minutes talking about adnes varda's nausicaa this is a film that uh, she basically shot in 1970 from what i discovered in my reading up on it and uh, was scheduled to be broadcast on French television sometime in 1971, but that opportunity never was brought to fruition. As the film, including all of the elements, the negatives, the original source materials, were apparently seized and destroyed against Varda's consent or permission, of course. And so the only document that survives of this film is a work print that uh, I guess was held in Belgium and has basically been reproduced in its entirety for the recently released box set, uh, the complete Agnes Varda, that uh, Criterion issued earlier this year. And so Nausicaa, even though it is a feature-length film, it's about a 90-minute-plus endeavor, and uh, I I think would be in a more just world, uh, you know, regarded as a very significant work. Um, Maybe not a major work, maybe not one of her uh, towering masterpieces, but uh, certainly one that would um, 
bear a lot of consideration. I mean, I really feel like if we had this in a properly um, restored version uh, with all of the final edits and whatever finishing touches she never got to put on the film, um, you know, we might be looking at something that's a, a, a significance. Uh, and it is a significance even in its kind of uh, less than optimal presentation. Because it is uh, apparently, again, I'm not an expert in Varda's entire career, but it's probably one of her most politically pointed films. Uh, she gets into some very nitty-gritty issues about uh, you know, revolution and uh, just government and the uprising of people who take an opposing stance when uh, government powers um, overreach their authority and become oppressive and uh, resort to torture and other types of um, clampdowns on, on freedom and, and uh, conscience and liberty, you know, all of those considerations of, of letting people live life on their own terms. So, yeah, there's a political edge here, and there are just some very interesting elements. Uh, there's a few essays that I'll link in the show notes that I think make the case a little bit more articulately than I can at the moment. But I do want to recommend this film. Uh, let me tell you just a little bit about it. It's, it's basically a, a narrative that strings together a few different concepts or, or ideas the beginning and the overall framing is interviews with political exiles, refugees from Greece in the aftermath of a coup that took place in 1967 and apparently kind of held sway over Greece for about the next seven years, seven, eight years or so. Uh, the coup was um, kind of overthrown or that government, um, you know, kind of collapsed in 1974, a few years after this film's um, kind of non-delivery. Uh, but <clears throat> in the meantime, it looked like you know, kind of a military regime was, was firmly in charge, and a lot of people suffered because of that. And Varda, who is of partial Greek uh, ancestry, although she uh, makes some points to talk about how she never really had a chance to explore that legacy, and that's another big part of what this film is about, you know, she's she's basically interviewing these men who've been exiled from Greece and and are now taking refuge in France, um, perhaps waiting for time that they can go back or just adjusting to uh, the realities of a new life. People who've lost a lot and, and who've maybe had uh, positions of some prominence in their former life and now they're just reduced to you know menial labor, just doing whatever it takes to survive and get by. Uh, in circumstances that are, I'm sure, very different than what they ever envisioned or desired uh, for their life to become. Uh, so these interviews are, are pretty direct. They're characters talking right into the camera, recounting bits of their experience, and basically you know, mounting a protest against uh, the current situation and doing what they can to um, bring this to people's awareness. Again, this was a film that was originally slated for television broadcast, so uh, an opportunity perhaps to reach a very large audience if uh, the, the film were marketed right and, and positioned in a way that could maybe get the attention of just ordinary people to help them understand what's going on over there in Greece. So that's the first piece, is, is just these kind of testimonials. And then there are these skits that kind of pop up every so often. I think, I don't know, maybe there's two, three, four of them, where they're kind of um, 
little little plays, little mini theatrical presentations of you know characters um, kind of speaking out of a sort of a mythologized um, presentation of, of Greek history. Uh, you know, this has kind of got some wit and some fanciful staging. Uh, they're they're kind of just unique little one-offs, little little moments that are tossed in there. I don't know to spice things up a little bit, just to kind of um, I don't know maybe maybe play out some metaphors or or other concepts to enlarge the the scope of the narrative. And then the the main action of the film really is a story about two young women. There's one woman named Agnes and another woman named Rosalie. They're kind of young roommates. And uh, because they have some space available, perhaps because they have a little bit of a, a desire to understand and, and support um, the, the refugees, the, the, the exiles from Greece that I spoke of earlier, uh, they make room in their apartment for a man named Michel. He's um, kind of a Greek intellectual, somebody who's been kind of ostracized by the state and has basically had to get out of Dodge so that uh, you know he can stay out of prison and maybe even just stay alive. So Michel, who's you know somewhat older, he seems like he's probably late 30s, maybe even early to mid 40s, maybe even older than that. But uh, you know he takes up uh, lodging uh, just temporarily. You know he's apparently recently arrived, and he needs a place to stay. And these women, you know, pretty generously make uh, space available to him uh, while he sorts things out. But in the course of the film, this relationship develops between Michelle and Agnes, and um, you know that's kind of just a plot thread that develops as. Um, you know, she's kind of contemplating her own background, and there are some autobiographical elements here, like Agnes Varda, the fictional character here. Agnes is of uh, you know partial Greek parentage. Uh, her father was a Greek man who never really did anything to bring his family back to his homeland. Um, he wasn't necessarily the same kind of political exile that the you know men are that we see in this film. But he left Greece uh, in pursuit of a new life. And now, both Agnes, the fictional character, and Agnes Varda herself have these kind of dreams of Greece and, and contemplate the significance of this, uh, this you know, personal prehistory, if you will, and, the, uh, and you know, all of the associations with Greek culture, you know, the mythology, as well as the... Um, the, the role that the Greeks play in European society, perhaps lauded because of the celebrated gla- classical, you know, golden age, you know, the philosophy, the art, <clears throat> the, uh, the culture, you know, all of those things. But in terms of contemporary reality, the Greeks themselves are not necessarily one of the more admired parts of Europe and uh, perhaps even are seen as a bit of a you know, subgroup or, or a bit, uh, if not necessarily outright inferior, just not as quite uh, as highly respected or included in the you know, community of nations. And that kind of gets back to the, the military coup and what was happening in the late 60s that preceded that. Um, you know, I'm not an expert <laughs> by any means on Greek history, but uh, I can kind of understand um, from some of the portrayals of Greek society that uh, that we see in Varda's other films, in particular Uncle Yanko, um, part of the Eclipse series set, where um, 
Varda is coming into contact with kind of a, a long lost uncle uh, who at this point living out on the west coast of the United States up in Marin County. And, um, you know, she's kind of getting in touch with, with, with him and, you know, through that connection with, with her own past. But also films like um, Fassbender's uh, Katzelmacher, where there's a Greek immigrant who is absolutely despised and looked down upon by um, his German neighbors once that refugee ends up in their community. And these are pretty low riffraff types themselves who really don't have much of a platform to look down on anybody, but uh, they do look upon, upon this this Greek immigrant. So looking at, at the, that overall situation um, and perhaps Greece as uh, seen as a bit of a vulnerability for uh, creeping leftism, socialism, uh, gasp, communism uh, in the late 60s, that may have served as one of the uh, justification for a pretty brutal military crackdown. Costa Gavras is another filmmaker, of course, uh, his film Z kind of comes right out of this same immediate context here and uh, is very helpful viewing if you want to understand more about the cultural background of Nausicaa. But I would imagine for most viewers, uh, the majority of listeners here probably have seen Z but haven't seen Nausicaa yet. So I'm not going to say a ton more about Nausicaa other than to say, please check it out. It is kind of buried it's a supplemental feature um, you know kind of a, an extra on disc seven in the complete agnes varda set uh, it's going to be on the same disc um, i think it's called our bodies ourselves um, something along that line that uh, has one sings the other doesn't and a few other films um, so they kind of fit into a little bit more of that uh, political activist side of varda's career uh, dealing with uh, issues of a collective concern rather than um, some of her other works that are much more about the subjective and the individual. Certainly there are elements of that here. Uh, she's always got a, a brilliant touch of blending these considerations and, and really making her films, uh, whether they're you know full-length features like this one or uh, you know, very inspired uh, but short films, you know, uh, she always weaves so many fascinating ideas and generates uh, so many different uh, thoughts and feelings as, as you encounter her films and, and get to know her characters. Uh, Nausicaa is no exception, but uh, yeah, this it, the cut is rough. It's, they haven't done any much re restoration, I guess, you know, when the image isn't marred by different markings and blotches and blemishes. You know the the image is is good enough, but uh, they they reproduce the leaders and the you know all of the kind of splices and everything are just there uh, as the one surviving print uh, gives it to you. So yeah, there's some interesting and and somewhat funky stuff going on with the soundtrack and the you know the opening and the ending of the film, and there's even a kind of a portion in the middle which I don't know if that was supposed to be a commercial break or if it's just um, Maybe it's two different reels. I don't know. I don't know how you know the, the film itself exists. How many canisters it takes up? But we're really thankful to have it, and it would have been an absolute horrible shame if that one work print hadn't been preserved and and presented to us uh, at this late stage of the game. Like I say, it's a work that she put a lot of time and thought into. It's uh, really tragic that that it doesn't get 
a better look and uh, more respect, more more even exposure. But it's just another example of the richness of, of Barda's work that uh, a film of this quality and caliber could just be relegated to sort of secondary status, probably again because of the condition of the materials and the fact that it really was never publicly aired at all. When those materials were seized and destroyed, Varda was never given any explanation. So even the idea that it was a you know, political censorship is still somewhat speculative. Uh, but it seems like the most likely explanation as to the very unjust fate that Nausicaa uh, was consigned to. So um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, you know, the reason I'm doing this as a solo track is that I just couldn't line up any guests to talk about it, which is fine. You know, again, in a in an ideal world, uh, we'd have a few folks on as we talk about uh, <laughs> the the achievement of Nausicaa and its significance in the overall canon of Varda's works. But right now, it's just a footnote. It's a side um, a side entry and. Um, nonetheless you know very worthy of your consideration so i'll just leave it at that and we'll go on now to the films of hollis frampton segment in which we're going to be talking about two short films by Hollis Frampton, both released in 1971, uh, both part of a series that he called Hapex Logomena, or Logomena, or Logomena. I don't know, I'm not sure how you pronounce that last word there, but Hapex Logomena is the uh, Latin word for things said once. I think that's that's the, the translation, at least my off-the-cuff version of it. And we're going to be getting into uh, two films. So the first one is called Nostalgia, and it's with a lowercase n and in parentheses, just to make sure we're really correct with the titling there. And the second film is Critical Mass. And so uh, I'm pretty astonished and pretty delighted with the turnout that these short, eccentric films have generated. So let's go ahead and get introduced to our guests. Uh, first of all, Jason Beamish. It's been a while since you've been on the show, but welcome back to Criterion Reflections. How's it going? I am grateful that uh, that I'm back on the show, and I I appreciate uh, always listening to everybody uh, chatting about these movies that we all love so much. You'll, we'll catch us up. What you've been up to lately? I know you've got your um, your own podcast and you've done some blogging and stuff. But uh, how's things going in Jason's world these days? Uh, I really, uh, I cannot complain. I, uh, really quite blessed when I 
take a look at it from uh, from afar. But as to how everything else going over at Film Ruminations, it's it's going well. Like many people, I, I saw this as an opportunity this this year as an opportunity to to focus down, and then I didn't do it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I actually have been producing less, but I believe that I like it more. So I I'm happy with with how things are going there, and mm-hmm. I'm currently working on the films from the um, Grindhouse releasing set over on the Film Ruminations podcast. Oh, cool. All right. Well, we'll have a link um, and, and, and let people catch up with what you're doing there. But I definitely understand, you know, uh, you know managing that pace is, is really important. I've, I've gone through periods where I'm kind of furiously, you know, uh, you know, adding, recording, uh, you know, connecting with people. And then there's times even like this current episode, which is already taken me over a month of just kind of uh, stretching things out, maybe even almost getting on two months there. Um, sure. But, you know, you, you got to just kind of, especially when you're doing it uh, <laughs> for the sheer art and, and uh, joy of it, rather than financial remuneration, uh, you know, mm-hmm. keeping it comfortable, manageable, and uh, maintaining enthusiasm is really, really important. So it's great to have you back on. Well, thank uh, you. All right, and here's a guy that I've talked to more recently, Brad McDermott. How's it going with you? Hey, David. It's going good. It's going good. Yeah. yeah. Any particular updates, news bits, uh, anything going on in your world that you want to tell us about? I mean, uh, I think along with the you know the rest of the world uh, up here in Toronto, we're in our second lockdown phase. So um, you know, we just bought a bunch of groceries and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Now you've already had your Thanksgiving, right? I mean, yeah, Thanksgiving's, a, <laughs> our, our Thanksgiving's in October up here. Yeah, right, right. So uh, here in the USA, where we were recording, it's uh, Saturday, November 21st. I've kind of put a little time marker on each of these recordings. So we're kind of entering into the holiday week and the holiday season and uh, kind of Glad to be wrapping up this episode with these conversations tonight. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody has to say. So let's go ahead and get to our next guest, Derek Power. Derek, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, yeah. And any any little uh, you know updates, uh, tidbits you want to throw out there? Um, no, just, uh, just this year, just entering the home stretch, so to speak, like you pointed out. Um, Thanksgiving is going to be next week. And then... Um, just trying to finish up the year and then give myself a much needed break. I'm going to visit. Fa- I'm actually going to visit family down in Virginia uh, for the rest of December. Cause I've not taken any kind of time off whatsoever. And I, I really, really need the distance to just to revigorate and get back into the swing of it. A little change of scenery always does us good there, especially in the current circumstances. Great. Well, good to have you with us. And then William Remmers, guest number four tonight. Uh, William, how's it going? You know, going real well. Things things are nice. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I have yeah. some projects working on that, you know, I don't like to say what they are because I, I like mm-hmm. to give up on them sometimes. So yeah. uh, I, I know what that's <laughs> like. But yeah, different various multimedia things that I'm, I'm working on that might be released by, by the end of the year. And if they're not, then I didn't do them. So uh, this is, that's the scoop. That's as much scoop as I'll give you. And, you know, I've been thinking about it because this will be our last podcast of the year. And I think I've been able to see more life-changing films or more life-changing film experiences this year than any other year of my life, basically because of wow. the time I have. And, and I think like a renewed openness 
um, two films in that I kind of like everything I see a lot. It tends to be very hard mm -hmm. for me to dislike things. So my life's getting constantly changed this year to the point that I, I'm looking forward to sort of like Derek, I'll be visiting my folks uh, around the new year for a few weeks just to then take stock of who I am now, because I don't really know. I don't know yeah. anymore. I, my life has been With all this changing going on, right? No idea. So, yeah. That's the opposite of me. I've been watching a lot of crap this year. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll find a happy median in between there, a, a meeting place where uh, we could go from the mundane to the uh, life transforming. Uh, but now let's get into the eccentric. <laughs> to really rock our world in, in different ways. So let's let's start by talking about Hollis Frampton a little bit. Uh, of course, we, we have been covering his films in these kind of cumulative year-end episodes for a couple of years now, as we're in season three. Uh, Carrots and Peas and Lemon, I think, was in the first season, and we did Zorn's Lemma last year. Uh, some of you are veterans of those of those conversations. Uh, what do we want to just say about Hollis Frampton? And, and uh, I'll just kind of give it to anybody who wants to jump in and just uh, who is this guy? What's he about for people maybe who are listening who haven't yet kind of made their acquaintance? Well, Hollis Frampton, like um, Stan Brackage, we'll be talking about later um reminds me that cinema is more than just a means of telling stories visually which is how we mostly experience it but that it can be kind of whatever you want and frampton it's very clear in, in his uh filmography that he was very much interested in experimenting with form and kind of kind of pushing the limits or the capabilities you know, testing the capabilities of what cinema can do you know he started he was very if you wanted me to do the bio thing i could i could do it very briefly um yeah, go for it yeah. so he well he started off as kind of as like a sort of like a kind of auto dick dad kind of doing his own thing eventually he discovered photography in the 60s and did a lot of work there but then then bit then got bitten by the filmmaking bug and pursued making films on his own and um uh zorn's lemma was really kind of his breakthrough it was it was the first experimental avant-garde film to be shown at the new york film festival where it premiered and then it just kind of continued on from there he just he just started making these kind of intricate sort of rube rube gobarg experimental films his his final project which he never which he didn't live long enough to see to any kind of completion was called the Straits of Magellan, and it was supposed to be this massive kind of survey of like anything and everything that cinema was supposed to be. But um, but unfortunately, he died of cancer just weeks after he turned forty eight in nineteen eighty four. So, well, thank you. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good uh, capsule, you know, uh, sort of presentation of his life. And and I really agree. He 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 understood that cinema is a visual medium it's an audio medium but the way that you put images and sounds together uh, the sequencing of things how things are edited you know the, the images the audio i mean you know nostalgia in particular is a very um you know well both of these films were there are very clear examples of how he sort of captured an idea and just pursued it kind of relentlessly applying a certain principle and and made films that are 
not just a sort of an intellectual exercise, but are really actually very engaging and, and very stimulating uh, once you get a, sort of on the wavelength of what he's doing here. But but it is it is kind of arch. It is a little bit um, you know unusual. Uh, you know, for for many people, it may be inaccessible because that's not what they're used to seeing when they sit down to quote unquote watch a movie. Um, so anybody else have any just kind of introductory thoughts or basic uh, impressions of Frampton that they want to throw out there before we start uh, analyzing nostalgia itself? I, I just wanted to add, he did seem to be around sort of the right time and place that a lot of this was happening. So um, he collaborate, like he talks about collaborating, he does collaborate actually with here with Michael Snow, um, who is a Toronto director, but was in uh, New York City during the time. Um, this also is in line with, um, is it William Greaves, the director of uh, Symbio uh, Sex Taxi Plasm, also Stan Brackage. It seemed to be that there was an experimental sort of film time in the in New York in the 70s um, that, that they were all sort of in dialogue with each other, uh, conversing with each other, trying to figure out how to move, uh, to, to pull experimental film out of the sort of um, the, the Kenneth Angers and the Maya Darren, sort of like the aesthetic into to like really destroying them sort of conceptually and, and building them back up. Well, I was thinking about this the other day, and I I don't know if this would actually happen, but if I were to have a course that I taught in film, I imagine I would start with carrots and peas and ask them to write like a thousand word essay on it. Okay. Because it's going to break down what they're expecting. You know, if you're going to take a film class, chances are you're going to be considering more of a narrative, and you may or may not be um, you may or may not have any exposure to avant-garde and experimental filmmaking. And it would really give them the opportunity to sit down and really focus on it as an alternative to what they might have been planning for. Yeah, yeah. The, the sheer simplicity of, of films like Carrots and Peas and Lemon, where it's so much on color and form and, and this very slow, patient mm -hmm. sort of extrapolation of an idea... Uh, it is. A, it's a great gateway into kind of you know the avant-garde experimental cinema. Uh, let's go ahead and get into nostalgia and just kind of talk about what we actually have here. Uh, I mean, you know, first impressions are it's a series of photographs that Hollis Frampton himself took back in that kind of early phase of his artistic career, where he was a photographer rather than a, a filmmaker, and uh, there's a narration that kind of you know, a soundtrack that uh, speaks as if it's Hollis Frampton himself uh, giving his impressions or memories of the story behind each photo, but it's not actually Frampton himself. It is Michael Snow, as uh, you know, Brad's already dropped that name, which is an interesting sort of disconnection. Uh, there's a sort of an imitation of memory going on here, but there's also a sequencing issue in that the photograph that you see on the screen when the narration is taking place is not uh, synchronized with the content of what's being said. Uh, the photograph that's being described is the one that's going to come up next in the sequence so that when you get into the, you know, after the first photo is kind of run its course, you're looking at a photo and recalling from memory what was said a few moments earlier 
to describe the image that you're now seeing, as well as listening to what's being said in anticipation of what you're about to see when that next photo burns. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my uh, off-the-cuff uh, capsule uh, description of what's on the film. Uh, who wants to take it from there? What is what is the effect that watching nostalgia has, both maybe the first time you watched it and presumably upon repeat viewings? When the, the This is very similar to me in the way I uh, interacted with Soren's Lemma when we covered it, which is that that first viewing experience is very much uh, centered around making any head or tail of it. And I, I found this was the case with, um, I watched the three segments of, of this cycle on the disc. I know we wouldn't be, we won't be covering the middle of the, of the three, but with all three of these, um, I experienced the same exact sensation as in during Zorn's Lemma, which is probably around halfway through something clicked and I understood at least some sort of structural gambit that I that I didn't know going in. So perhaps I guess if you if you were listening and you've gotten this far, we've spoiled it for you. But the thing is, these are really rewatchable uh, pieces, and and um, those moments always made me laugh. The moment when I understood what Frampton was doing elicited such a joy from me that, um, in spite of I think the the heavier autobiography that this cycle leads towards and the fact that there are um, there's there's elements of his own life that he is putting out there and showing in, in quite an unvarnished way. In fact, it's almost as if uh, he describes in his remarks, which are essential, the uh, audio recordings. He's so funny and, and insightful uh, and self-effacing with the audience, which I presume are students or, or potentially an audience. I can't remember where those are recorded. Uh, but they're very, very quiet, but appreciative audience at his jokes. And he does explain that, that in a way the film is um, about a, a past self, even a self that he doesn't even regard as himself anymore, but someone else. And that split is something that you don't even know going in. In fact, I would even argue that knowing Michael Snow does the autobiography uh, uh, portions um is still even its way a bit, a bit of, a, of, a, of a spoiler, so to speak, as the film doesn't directly tell you that. And almost the more you hear about the backstory of it, the more you listen to Frampton's remarks, and the more you then read the booklet is also very insightful. Um, if, uh, if you see in the booklet, there's a moment where it talks about the, the basically the de facto premiere of Nostalgia. Uh, wherein he he uh, he showed he showed a group of his films to people um, and knew that nostalgia was cooking and had it ready to go, and was considering premiering it that <laughs> no night. No pun intended. Yeah. So he says this to the audience: After you've seen these films, if I judge that you have been a good audience, I will reward you with a world premiere of a new film that I have made to deprive New York of the privilege by giving Pittsburgh first refusal. Applause. On the other hand, on the other <laughs> hand, if you're a bad audience. I will punish you with the world premiere of a film that I made. <laughs> Laughter for the same purpose, and that 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 energy and like his his severe eloquence on those recordings and um, ability to say these incredibly lucid things in the most insightful way possible um, really enriched the experience of having just viewed the film because everything David just described about. For example, you know, w the audio you're hearing not being in sync with the image you're seeing, um, that you're 
taking at face value the, met the men mention of a metronome over the first picture made me just say, there's a metronome in there. This is a very busy photograph. I'm sure I just can't see it. Or maybe I even saw a metronome where there wasn't one. And then the next picture comes up and there's a metronome in it. And I say, oh, that's interesting that there's a theme going on. And I kept taking for the first four or five photos what was being said at face value until I realized that mm -hmm. this is continuously making no sense. And then for maybe the second half of the film, I got that experience of... Um, very stressful, actually, of trying to listen to what he's currently saying while remembering what was previously said while trying to juggle all those things at once. And there is also that moment, a sort of buffer period, where as the photo burns, eventually the narration stops. And as that shot continues, the photo will continue to burn. And that negative space allows for all sorts of things. And I, Frampton has encouraged this, of course, to fill a lot of that with your own thoughts, your own images, your own experiences. Um, maybe not explicitly for this film, but I believe in general that um, those moments of downtime are useful for an audience. And if you, if your mind wandered to something else, um, it's not strictly a game you're trying to solve. And I think that's a big difference between this and Zorn's Lemma, where that was fun watching that. Maybe we won't spoil that if you haven't seen it, but that is a very fun and engaging experience with how the patterning in it um, challenges your mind to follow what's going on and to predict right. things and expect things. Once you know what's going on in nostalgia, which I think the lowercase parentheses title, of course, gives it already an ironic sensibility um, that you are put in this, this um, a, a much more meditative version of, of a similar thing. It's still very Framptonian, but it, it, um, it manages to, be much more personal to the filmmaker and to the viewer, I think, that by the end of it, you, you've you remembered things about your own life. And clearly a lot of these are regret. And clearly a lot of these are looked back on with an ironic sensibility. Um, there are laugh lines, I think, in this narration, which makes it even funnier when um, Canadian Michael Snow delivers it in his, his beautiful voice that um, <laughs> renders everything alarmingly deadpan. So what's being implied here, William? Well, I just wanna, I, <laughs> what's being implied, Brad, is that we all love to hear you speak. Um, yeah. so, Thank you. So, uh, anyway, that's that's my, my long and short of it. I had so much fun with this experience. And in fact, I will admit I'm not rewatching it just yet because I wanted to kind of let that sizzle a bit. And I knew that I'd get some interesting in insight from everybody here. Uh, but I know I'll be watching this again many times in my life. And hopefully we'll eventually see uh, the back for uh, episodes of this cycle. All right, who wants to pick it up from there? Um, I, would, I just wanted to add uh, to your description, David, of it that, um, you, I mean, you're kind of, it's kind of suggesting the sort of meta nostalgia narrative, right? We're struggling to remember the thing that we just heard about with the new image that we're just seeing. But added an extra layer to that is Frampton himself is lamenting throughout all of these descriptions about when he was interested in still photography. Um, so that itself is a nostalgia that he is having as well for this yeah. past career he had. Um, and the the act of burning these images themselves is kind of a nostalgia. They they're temporary. You can you see them once and then they're gone forever. So he's the 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 title of the nostalgia just sort of works on many different angles. Uh, 
is sort of like one huge experience of sort of nostalgia on mass, I guess, for lack of a better description. <laughs> well, yeah, and that, that this film is a series of still photographs. It's just they're rolled through at a in a at a fast sequence, but each of these is a distinct image that can you know be unspooled on the reel of film. And uh, and he does you know not only talk about how he doesn't he's not a photographer anymore, but he, you know, certain prints that he doesn't even develop because the negative is so hard to work with. And, uh, you know, and kind of knocking down some of his own pomposity, the, the self portrait of the, uh, you know, the similar grandeur of the other, other uh, portraits that were taken of that batch. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a, an artist in the process of maturing, looking back on his younger self and saying, Oh my God, that's so embarrassing. I can't believe I actually <laughs> did which is a very common um, sensation for anybody who's been engaged in, in creative expression, whether that's on the public level or even just your old journals and you, you look them up and say, oh my gosh, I was such a fool. But, you know, there it is on paper or there it is out there in the world or even in your own personal archive, but that, that self-consciousness about uh, a stage that you've grown past and you just have to acknowledge as part of your fumbling uh, toward expressing that thing that you're, you're you're trying to get out there that that sort of drives all of our artistic endeavors so you're right there, there's all all these different layers going on in this seemingly whimsical exercise yeah to, to add to that for sure i mean it's 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 definitely the the narration does come off like uh an artist's memoirs and and it reminds me of that that as far what what interests me about art in general as someone who makes art himself is the artist will have will always have his own relationship with his own work because you know you've, you've witnessed it from the beginning you've 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 you're aware of what decisions you've made that led up to the finished product but everybody else is not privileged to that information as all at all even if you divulge everything you went through they're still going to look at the total work and so so Frampton is able to recall particular anecdotes or, Oh, I remember, uh, you know, I, he was my friend during this time or, Oh, I met him in this place or this was, I was, you know, whatever, whatever anecdotes he gives. Um, we don't know all this. We don't know any, and we'll never be able to experience any of that at all. All we just see is the finished product, which is now burning on a hot plate. And, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> And the other thing that in, in general, what I like about Frampton's films is it's def you definitely get a, what I've come to call a memory workout because you're taking in all this information and you're piecing it together. You're analyzing it. You're, you're trying to make sense out of, well, for starters, you're trying to make sense out of the, the, this jointment of between the narration and what you're seeing, but then you're also, but then it leads you to. Uh, again, like like we've been established before, you, it leads into other thoughts about nostalgia in general, the relationship of art and the artists, and our relationship with time and how we present versus what's actually there, and and all these all these different things that come into play. So there's a lot more there's a lot more going on than what the construction itself may give, which could come off as just a one-time gimmick but there's a lot more going on to it than than what its construction will will be yeah yeah no there, there's definitely a lot of thought and intelligence that goes into this it's not just sort of a mechanical you know process that he sets up and or it's an impulsive it. thing 
Right, right. The uh, memory work that you just said, Derek, is exactly spot on with, I think, the sensation I get from films like this and Zorn's Lemma of feeling smarter and stupider after having seen it. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, I feel, first of all, I feel like I'm incredibly lucky to have gotten to a point in my life and have had the privileged education I've had enough to even start to see what's going on in a lot of these things, which I think, um, I mean, I just know that my parents would never, would, would turn it off after 30 seconds. Like they, uh, they, they would not, they'd be looking for characters and not being able to see the characters that are in it. And, um, but that said, clearly Frampton is somebody of, um, if you listen to him speak and seeing how uh, lucid it is, it's, He's someone of a incredible intelligence and sophistication uh, with how he processes own, his own ideas and even reacts to the way other people process them and understand them. Um, so when, you know, he, he rejected the structuralist term as, as Sidney um, sort of lumped him in with that group. And as true as, as that might be when you look at it, I think that Frampton just wanted to um, reject labels in general. And instead of being limited by what he thought film could achieve, um, he, he seems to think that that's one reason that, you know, maybe he was doing photography or maybe why he didn't think film was for him. But um, for somebody um, to get it this much, to understand film this much, I think they need to just be somebody that understands like, the way humans interact with any sort of temporal or visual art experience and also the way they interact with their own lives. Um, the, the amount of layers even deepens because I think that um, one other layer with which I, I think is very engaging to interact with is the, the genuine abstract visual of the burning image, which of course oh, all yeah. the images yeah. burn in quite different ways. And in fact, the very final image burns into an, uh, a shape which to me seems like a pile of writhing bodies. It has this very bizarre look to it like something out of Hieronymus Bosch, except in black and white. And when it suddenly cuts to black and the film is over and the HF sort of card shows up, uh, I gasped and felt instantly cosmically sad and confused because you, you get in such a, a loop and a habit with these movies that when either a segment moves on to the next segment, you almost regret to see it go. And um, maybe that's the reason why though he's burning the photographs, he's still making a record of them. They're, they're not actually being burned, if you think about the, the experience we're getting out of it. Um, and it allows him to immortalize something which he's leaving behind. And that's an, that's an extra layer of nostalgia, right? He is, he's burned these things, um, but here they are in, still in a, in a memory, in a, in a film form of memory. And, and rewatchable, and, and, and they're really transformed. I mean, they are destroyed, and then the, the original image is no longer perceptible, but there's a, there's a kind of a new beauty that, has, that they've become, that they've, they've transformed into. And that is definitely an advantage of having these films on Blu-ray. You get this really fine-grained, beautiful image of, of, of just the almost you know the molecules but certainly the, the you know the fibers of the paper and, and the, the weird uh, transitions that it goes through as, as you know the kind of the circular patterns develop of, of, the, of the hot plate the little spiral coils there um, and and how it interacts with the image and then I don't I don't know if he printed them on different types of paper or what the 
dynamics were, but you're right, there's some really interesting stuff that's happening just with the physical object of this burning, um, of this burning photograph and the flames and the smoke and the, the way that the charred image just kind of writhes around in front of you on the screen. So seeing this on a nice, big, high-resolution monitor or even better yet on a projected large screen image would definitely have its own appeal. It's They're, they're not just being destroyed or burned in some you know, sort of... Uh, you know, abstract sense. There's a there's a beauty, there's an aesthetic to what you actually see happening with that photograph going up in the flames. It's a physical transformation that can parallel, in a way, a spiritual transformation. Because you think mm-hmm. about destruction leading to creation, and even there's even a creative destruction going on, and and that's certainly going to be true with the next one we're going to be talking about for sure. Mm-hmm. So, well, there's a few uh, uh, a few things that really came to mind. The first one is the idea of like the kill, kill your darlings. Um, you can have, you can, you can have the memory, but it yeah. will disappoint you. Um, at the end of the day, you know, he's talking about these we'll call them premature images because he's not ready for them yet, or he was not ready when he took them as, as an artist. And for him to process it is to destroy it because you don't want to be held back by the past. But the other thing is, it reminds me of something that uh, Bergman said, and I wonder how much replay these films were ever really expected to get. You know, Bergman cut the penis into uh, persona, figuring we'd never be able to pause. Yeah. You know, mm. we're talking <laughs> right. about how... Freeze frame, right, um, right. Frampton saved these images while destroying them. But at any point in time, did he imagine that we'd be talking to each other through space, being able to stream these movies mm-hmm. from space and in, in a very high, high definition to be able to see each yeah. of the flaws that he's actively destroying. Yeah. And, and even the ability to, you know, uh, put that image that is being talked about yeah. on a separate window in your monitor. <laughs> you know, there there are cheats available. You know, like if you go to hollisframpton.org uh, UK, I think it is, um, you can get uh, a lot of his films. In fact, his his uh, estate has been very generous in making a lot of the non-criterion works available. Uh, it's not going to be in the highest definition quality that we get on this beautiful Blu-ray edition, but you, you know, and I, I've actually done that. I, I, I will have the the film streaming on the Criterion channel while I've got the images kind of sequenced up there on, on the official Hollis Frampton website. An interesting thing: there's, there's the 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 photograph of the two toilets is not part of that sequence for some reason. I don't know if that's just an oversight or a mistake, or if there was a deliberate. Uh, decision to not include that one. <laughs> Go ahead. That's and, my yeah. favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and because he turns it into a sort of uh, religious iconography. Uh, yeah. Almost. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, tell it's tell us about good. that. Yeah. I, and I do want to. I do want to ask if people have any particular favorites. So since we've kind of gone down that road already, Brad, well, tell yeah, us a little sure. bit about, about that photograph. Yeah. I mean, that one is my favorite. Uh, maybe. I mean, I just came back from Italy last year and submersed myself in Renaissance art. So. Maybe all that 
that's still fresh in my brain. Um, but I, I thought it was sort of brilliant, especially when, because you, he, you hear the description of it and he's like, oh, this is like the, you know, uh, Christ on the cross and the crucifixion. And then he describes, um, you know, the Virgin Mary is on one side and Mary Magdalene's on the other. And that the skull of Adam representing, you know, humanity's sin is there as well. And I'm just sort of toilet paper. Yeah. I'm just sort of trying to conjure like, what the hell is this image going to be? And then he cuts it to the next one and you're like, Oh my God. And like, the two stalls are, there's a toilet in each stall. One of the lids is open and one of the lids is closed, suggesting one of the toilets is Mary, is the Virgin Mary, and one of the toilets is Mary Magdalene. And and the there's a shelf above. And so this, this divider between the two stalls and the shelf above makes that cross. And then, of course, one of the rolls of toilet paper is sitting at the bottom. So it's funny because this whole film, he is lamenting like you said david how he he's sort of going back and looking at his previous uh still photographs and not really kind of liking them and then kind of really burning them and i'm like i kind of think that image is kind of brilliant like can we save that one <laughs> it's, it's a very it's a very dadaist thing because it is it is yeah that's that's exactly like michelle duchamp would in his to in his toilet right and it, it is a fountain yeah that that toilets was the the part where that was the apex of my stupidity because um, <laughs> it's like it's the one before the image that you're hearing about the toilets. It's just like a, a shot through a window, and I was just looking at it, going, "I guess the toilets are off off frame. They're out of frame." And he's talking about the memory of like I was reading eighteen other thousand things into it still by that picture, other than oh, it's the next picture. So. I don't know if that experience is true for a lot of viewers. I always love when I have experiences with a film where I'm woefully un underprepared at the beginning and then have a moment of realization halfway through. So I think that right after that point, when he was describing the next thing, and I went, this is too fishy. These, these descriptions, you know what? They don't sound anything like what I'm looking at. <laughs> I finally understood what was going on. Uh, and the toilets was the moment where I, I, I think it finally started to to click for me. Um, and truthfully, I think that's the reason I'm not rewatching it because even if I can see the images on pause or on the website, I want to keep them pure as the experience within the film. And mm -hmm. I know that if I see it again, say I wait a, a few months to see it again, I think I will still be a little confused as to which each one is in that I think the the job of he, of remembering what you just heard while you're hearing the new information is something I don't want to be very good at. I think the fun of the film is like not having the script memorized. And mm -hmm. I would be worried to ever get to that point. So perhaps um, the ephemeral quality of just see it at a screening at some point at, um, at, at either a film festival or a museum and um, have that moment with it and then let it sit with you, I think, to me is in keeping with um, what the film presents. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I think I've gone, I've sat through it like four times now. So the last time, which was tonight, is when I kind of did that side by side, you know, comparison the the the, the scrolling film on the one side and, and the images on the other. And again, just noticing, just I don't know if there's a little playfulness or whatever going on there uh, as to why you know the the toilet images not preserved in that sequence. But uh, it was it was it was. Just an interesting little wrinkle that they throw in there. Uh, are there any other particular photos that uh, people want to talk about or, or unpack a little bit? 
I did feel a kinship with the one, the one description, which is over the picture of, um, and again, because I don't remember what anything actually is, uh, the man yeah. um, blowing out smoke. Um, That's Tony Stella. That, descri that description is the one where he's describing, oh, I visited my friend and we went and we shot some photos together. And I went, oh, this is one of the photos. That description was one of the ones that sort of confirmed my accidental uh, apprehension about it, where I was looking at it and going, okay, this is one of the, this is the last photo they took that day. And um, that made perfect sense to me. Uh, but really, I don't remember what that image looks like, the image of, of that day that he spent with his, his friend. But I like when they said that nothing came of, it was like a magazine um, gig, and nothing came of that shoot. And that is a cold truth that I'm glad is preserved here, that you will sometimes do a gig or even like the perspective um, sample of a gig like here this is the work i'm going to do for you will you be accepting it? and especially in certain forms of media um you get a lot of cold rejections after what seems to have been uh, approval and uh, i i really felt for that moment so i think uh as as actually a moment of the autobiography um it made me connect even deeper with with frampton i liked the i can't think of the exact quote from that but that um explanation where he talks about the smoke rings are just a craft. The only art is what comes out of an opera singer's mouth. <laughs> or the only, the only art from a mouth is uh, comes from an opera singer. Yeah, is that true, William? Uh, you know what? <laughs> uh, I uh, I plead the fifth on that one. I think, uh, I think I'm I, pandering I, to you. Please take it. Thanks, <laughs> Jason. I I. Uh, Gosh, um, well, I, that definitely <laughs> did hit me as well. But of course, when I was hearing that, I was still going, I don't see any smoke rings. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think I was like, I was on nine planes at once, which is, again, I think why I enjoyed the experience. That's fair. I get, well, actually, the, the, the one description actually that comes to mind is actually the last one that you hear, which interestingly enough was describing the very first picture you saw. In, in the film where was it though it I don't think so like, I don't think so I think that, well but go ahead play your, Cause, your cause idea I, I, think, I think the way it works is what's interesting is that the, the film starts off with um, testing the levels basically like like uh, yeah. so say like is this volume all right and, and friends like yeah yeah it's good and he's giving an introduction to the concept and then oh wait he yeah he describes the he describes an image which you'll then see subsequently but i, I guess what what's just the metronome image oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah, but, 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 but what's being shown is this kind of like lab or something like that it's, it's kind of like yeah, a, yeah. a workspace with a bunch of equipment but that's not what's described at the very end i thought it, like it, I thought it was but, but what but what intrigue but what does intrigue me about the last description in general was was how he's describing how he was able to extrapolate this this specific detail that he that he got from this image that he took and then it and you have this sort of bold exclamation and probably the one time that snow ever sounds really emotional is uh mm -hmm. do you see what i see can you right, see what right. i see and that's really interesting to close to have that close the whole thing because then it kind of makes you well and then when it makes you go back and kind of see the whole thing and just to make sure that everything is is lined up in your head but then Again, that's that could be another layer of 
of being able to see these images anew? Like what else, mm-hmm. what else can you, can you be able to see what he sees or can you see something else? I, 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 yeah, I, I, I no, I, uh, I, uh, I feel like I actually, um, I'm, I'm on board with uh, the, the reading at least on first um, watch because um, I, ass- well, assuming once I knew what was going on about halfway, I assumed that the film would continue in this way and that the final image would be uh, a narration of the first one. I sort of, I sort of took that as my like um, conclusion of where I thought it was headed. So I think when that happened, I was predisposed towards what uh, Derek is suggesting. And because and I, because yeah. the first image is of this liminal space that um, I assumed a metronome was just in, like that's why I I bought that right. I didn't. This is one reason I don't know if that's like if I'm actually being tricked more than I'm supposed to. But I do get the impression that um, when, when Frampton introduces these films, he provides details. Um, that don't necessarily hinder um, some of this um, exploration one can have, but does give a lot of background into the sort of making of it and, and why it exists. And what I observed in, in the quote Derek just quoted, um, to me, that was a perfect representation of how I felt that liminal space at the beginning. That's just, a, again, we, we, we see it's some sort of lab, but it, like I couldn't make out very much of what was in the actual image. And being so confused as to think a metronome was there, it did feel a very fitting way to kind of bring it round as if the first image we saw is really some sort of abstract closing up shop of um, the whole situation. But I think that um, if, if we're getting, if we're sort of split as to what how we read it, I think that is uh, just all to the credit of the general obfuscation that that the, the, the process he goes through here um, provides. But that's what makes it brilliant, you know, no, no matter how you read that, whether it's describing an image that we never see or it's describing an image that we've long since seen, but is but has been there's been several other images in between. I think that's what makes that closing description so powerful. Yeah, I think the assumption that this is kind of a circular pattern and that, you know, where we end up in the narration is where we, we began with the visuals kind of makes sense and it's it's a it's a logical conclusion to draw about you know the structure of the film but brad i think you were kind of on the same pace yeah. that i was that that what's verbally described is where he's taking a, a, a photograph of an alley trying to get this kind of perspective and then a truck pulls up and sort of interferes with that shot and then there's a kind of a reflection in uh, there's a, a detail in the image of once it was developed, that is this kind of whatever this horrifying, appalling thing that he sees that you know stirs up the emotion that you referred to with Michael Snow's narration. But that's not what you see that's in not the, what you the see. opening image. Yeah. So there's this kind of it's it's this kind of ominous, almost uh, dread. Uh, it's almost like this image that's too much to actually risk showing the viewer. So that's yeah. where he cut off. And that, that was my, and, and I didn't get that until like maybe the second or third time through. So it's a kind know. of, it's kind of feeling like the, the end of this film is sort of stepping off the edge into oblivion or something like, mm-hmm. like just, you said, it's, it's completely, it's, it's uh it's almost Lovecraftian. It's a, it's an undescribable thing to see. It's so <laughs> yes, horrifying, yeah. but it is beyond the words to describe it, and certainly beyond uh, the picture to actually show it. Um, and in in some way, 
I think also the very first image is, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to keep using the word meta, but the photograph I think it is, is of a uh, photo development lab, a right. dark room, right? Right, um, you see the chemicals and the trays. And the right, exactly. And uh, that in itself, uh, I guess, is, is you could say that the whole film, that, that single first image is maybe like the title card for the film or, or uh, uh, an Im image that sort of like sets the scene for all of this. And, and in a way is a meta image of, of photographs, right? We are seeing these photographs being destroyed on an open flame. And the very first image is the genesis of every photograph in these right. chemical it, labs. Right. And these are like hand-printed no photographs, you know, that right. he's, he's physically made himself. He hasn't just shipped them out. And these are not obviously digital images or anything like that. These are physical objects that you know, he's kind of trotting out for. Go ahead, Derek. Actually, I was going to say the fact that you're seeing a photo lab is actually no different than how how film is developed. I mean, granted, mm -hmm. it's it's there's some variation a little bit, but you, you see, but you see chemicals and baths and and everything, and and film goes through the same process like what what mm -hmm. what photographs go through. So, yeah, very meta. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we've we've definitely spent more time talking about the film than the running time of the film itself. <laughs> <laughs> Time to move on. I just, I do, I do want to tip my hat to the cast of thousands. I, I like that little, uh, you know, that laugh line there. So, anyway, go ahead, Brad. Yeah. I just wanted to, before we moved on, I just wanted to drop a note uh, about Michael Snow, just because sure. uh, as yeah. a Toronto man, um, so Michael Snow is one of uh, our our uh, city's more prominent artists. And uh, he, he works in many different forms. He's also a musician, um, but he, uh, uh, just like Hollis Frampton, is a uh, uh, experimental filmmaker. Uh, his most famous work is called Wavelength, mm -hmm. uh, which I had the privilege to see with Michael Snow. God, when I first moved to Toronto, I can't even remember, mm -hmm. over 10 years ago. Um, but it is amazing. Hunt it down. It's great. Um, he's also a, a, a visual artist. He's a sculptor. Um, his uh, hanging work in the in the Toronto Eaton Centre, he has uh, some Canada geese, and they are sort of the symbol of the Eaton Centre, and they're hanging right in the entranceway. Those are works by Michael Snow. Um, and also the home of the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, uh, the Rogers Center, formerly called the Sky Dome, he has two enormous sculptures called the Hecklers that are hanging off the edge of it. So I just wanted to give a quick, from the, my Toronto Canadian listeners, uh, give just a shout out to Michael Snow. His oh, his works, Walking Women, that he mentions actually in uh, Nostalgia. Um, there's a bunch of those figures at the um, the Art Gallery of Ontario as well here in the city. So yeah. Give no, that's that's prepared. great background. I, I knew a little bit about Michael Snow. I've seen Wavelength, and I think that's actually one of those. Um, I don't know. I won't say frequently anthologized, but it's definitely one of those kind of landmarks of experimental cinema. So definitely, I really appreciate the background knowledge on him, uh, Brad, that you shared with us. So uh, yeah, because he does a great job, uh, you know, uh, narrating Hollis Frampton's memories there. So <laughs> with love. If Criterion is listening, Criterion, if you're listening, uh, we would really love a Michael Snow uh, Blu-ray release <laughs> Yeah, as, a, no, as your it, next experimental filmmaker release. And it has been a while since they've kind of come up with one of those. So, yeah, I, I think we're overdue for a little bit more of that. Uh, maybe him or Jonas Nikos would be another 
great addition if they could ever wrestle the rights to those uh, those films. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and get into Critical Mass. Now, you talk about entertaining, hilarious film. Like, to me, this was just a hoot. <laughs> what what a, what a great uh, you know, uh, and 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 what a what a maximization of about. I think Frampton somewhere says this is about eight minutes of a, kind of a semi-improvised. Um, dialogue uh, between a man and a woman uh, having an argument and uh, it's it's not scripted he basically gave him a premise to start acting out and and kind of embodying uh, the idea being that a man and a woman who live together uh, he's kind of disappeared for a day or two hasn't made any phone calls hasn't you know, reached out to let his uh, lady friend, his partner, know where he's at, and she's confronting him about it. And uh, you know, the argument gets kind of heated because he really doesn't think he owes her an explanation, doesn't have any reason that he has to tell her exactly what he was up to. He's got his own rights to privacy, and she's just not buying it. So that's that's the setup. But uh, who wants to kind of take it from there as far as what actually happens in the course of this film? Uh, once we've got the uh, argument uh, wheels in motion. So this, this is an experiment with um, synchronized sound and, and I'm trying to remember exactly like the whole thing is how the whole thing is constructed. But um, the first thing you hear is you, you hear this sort of staggered playback where it's about maybe two seconds or so of audio and then it starts about a second earlier and then plays two seconds and then back a second plays two and so forth. So you get like this staggered forward um, playing of sound, which uh, definitely reminds me of any and all experimentation done using tape machines starting with starting in the 1950s and in, even into the 70s, uh, probably most famously with um, with Steve Reich, like with. Uh, um, I think I think it's called uh, "Come Out to Show Him" is is what the the title of it is. But the phrase you hear a lot is uh, "Let bru- let some of the bruised blood come out to show him," and it's done in a loop and it's played on two different machines and it creates a phasing effect and so forth. So that's what that's what it definitely reminds me of in the beginning. Just this experimentation with with audio, and then and then later you see the image come in, and the image has the same sort of. Uh, step back move forward effect and then uh and then it goes back to i think there's i think there's like i think there's the same thing but it's like a different configuration and then i remember at the very end the there's no editing on the soundtrack at all but there's a three second delay so you're here so what you hear is what you will actually see later and if if you note certain phrases and you can anticipate someone's mouth saying those lines. So it's, it's definitely this, this interesting effect of how sound and image are drifting and are not in sync with each other, which is a nice little unintentional meta commentary about the dramatic situation being shown where you have two people who are on completely different wavelengths and are not connecting at all and are just, just kind of bashing it out. So, mm-hmm. so what's the point? 
I mean, I think, I mean, for me, this was sort of a bit lesser than nostalgia. I think sure. uh, there's, uh, there's something, I mean, there's the disconnect with the film medium, right? And the disconnect with the, the relationship. The film is not communicating. It's picture and sound are not communicating. Uh, this, this boyfriend and girlfriend are not communicating. Um, I think there's, that's something to be, that, that for me, I could extrapolate that. Um, it's still not a pleasant experience to watch. Uh, it's certainly not a, uh, as pleasant as nostalgia. Um, but I mean, that's, that's, what I, that's what I got from it. Okay. I'll go ahead and take the other side of that and say that I like that <laughs> a lot more. Not that I, I truly enjoyed nostalgia, but as the very first thing that came to my mind was how similar critical mass is to hip hop. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. to the point in which I have a, a 30 second track that I'm going to send to you, David, if you want to use it. Okay. Uh, sure. In between where I took um, some beats by Dr. Octagon and put it underneath the dialogue from critical mass. And it oh, kind of okay. works. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of works. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I'm up for it. I, I, I've even thought maybe we could edit a portion of this episode. I could do a little bit of experimentation. We'll see if I follow through with that idea or not. But uh, yeah, the idea of just kind of this kind of stuttering effect where you're kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And, and to me, I think one of the things I found so amusing is that once you sort of recognize the dynamics of this conflict are, are in motion, and the yelling goes back and forth and the cussing and the accusations and the excuses and the blame shifting and the, you know who's trying to get the last word or trying to get the upper hand here. You, you just see these really rudimentary elements of people in conflict. And it's sort of like laid out for you as to how an argument escalates. And, and since, since there's kind of this... Um, fragmentation of each statement, you just kind of see all the components of why things go from a simple disagreement to this heated, you know, breakup, move out, you know, F you, I'm not going to do that. And you don't, you don't have the right. And it's, you know, the, the defensiveness and the posturing to sort of maintain one's sense of innocence or superiority or rightness in the face of the opposition from the other. I mean, it's just, it's kind of just laying out such a fundamental aspect of, of human existence, you know, of, of conflict, of animosity, of contempt and hatred and all of that. And of course, those types of dramatic conflicts are the, are the, the engines that motivate so many of the films that we enjoy and find so fascinating. I mean, Bergman has a great talent for getting people in these kind of verbal, uh, 
they're, they're really like wars. They're like these spectacular eruptions of people just shredding on each other. This is much more mundane and, and kind of comical and simplistic in its, in its terms because these are a couple of fairly immature people who are just kind of, you know, ripping on each other. But it, it does sort of sort of showcase just the how how these how these disagreements just kind of blow up into something much bigger than either side wanted it or anticipated it would be, but there it is anyways. And uh, and I think it's just because it is kind of it's it's an easy film it's an easy situation to feel superior to yourself like oh my goodness look at these people just kind of you know tearing each other a new one uh over really kind of a stupid thing but we're all very susceptible to that same type of emotional meltdown if the right buttons are pushed and here's here's a kicker for you those those two drama students uh they were from um SUNY Binghamton, they're now in their 70s, assuming they're still yeah. alive. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? You're seeing these young people kind of captured at this particular stage of life, but you're right. They've all grown up and moved on and presumably, you know, gotten to other stages of self-awareness and, and relational uh, and interpersonal maturity. But, you know, here's just one moment that's kind of captured and <laughs> And played with. I think that's that's what I, I enjoy about this film is, is Frampton's, um, you know, he, he's not just applying, again, not just an editing technique uh, just for the sake of being clever. He's he's uh, he's using this this idea of, of splicing and, and dicing and reassembling this footage uh, of, of a particular type of interaction. Uh, to me, that's what makes this really, really interesting. And again, I've, I've watched this one several times and just continue to find it very, very amusing and, and, and enlightening in its own way. Even though I, I have to f- confess I'm a bit voyeuristic watching these two people go at it like that. <laughs> this is a very <laughs> accurate <laughs> representation of New Yorkers. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I'm, 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 I'm living with one. I know. <laughs> You've been gone for two days. You didn't. Two days. You've been gone for two days. You didn't tell me anything. Two days. You didn't tell me anything. What are you talking about? Tell me anything. What are you talking about? What did you call me? What are you talking about? What did you call me? What did you call me? Who's gonna get the fuck out of the who's gonna get the fuck out of the apartment? Fuck out of the apartment. I think I think Frampton's genius here is his understanding that like this material, which would be very, very Actually, I think the eight minutes would be almost more insufferable than the 26 or whatever that we get to enjoy Frampton playing with it because, right. and I think because he gave them so little to work on, you even hear her like asking if they should stop. Like there's, there's a sense that like they are just making a bit of a mess. And I actually think they do, they do a pretty good job of, of again, representing, I think real dumb people who end up in dumb relationships where clearly they should just quit. And then they are still in it for some reason. And um, it actually is, it reminds me of, uh, of uh, some other film I watched this week, which was um, uh, one of the other ones in the 
who is it? Sam Brackage set with this was Redlock House and Intercourse, which again, just oh, watching yeah. that, I'm like, why bother? Why do this? Just stay, be alone. <laughs> like, this is, I always like films that remind me that being alone is fine. Like people that can find people that they can get along with, I really love that. But you know, it's just like both of the people in this particular Critical Mass are wrong and unpleasant and difficult. I probably the guy's more wrong because he's a guy, and what he's saying is really stupid. But the the Framptonism of it is is the, is really the, the reason to be here. Um, I I was catching on too to the enjoyment of the fact that it, you know it starts black, goes black in the middle, is black again at the end. There's a portion that repeats from earlier, and it does it in a very surreptitious way where all of a sudden you realize you're hearing something you heard a while back, and you're like, oh, this part of the conversation again. And um, it almost felt comic to me because really these conversations, these arguments that. New Yorkers have it, are very cyclical and um, <laughs> irritating because no one, no one <laughs> to make points. And um, I did notice that that the the sort of skipping back and forth would generally mean that we tended to hear on average syllables three times. So like any word or syllable, we'd, we'd usually end up getting three airings of it, occasionally four. Uh, but rarely fewer than rarely like two. Usually it's cut that way. But from what I understand, Frampton did edit it less mathematically and more instinctually. So especially when when moments yeah. shift or there are little bleeps and bloops or moments where you know as the as it almost seems like they were changing reels, but that doesn't make sense because given how short the footage was. But um, the way the two sort of portions of this start and and uh, it always starts in a way that isn't in sync until it is, and so. Um, there's loads going on in addition to the starts and stops, but I was really struck by the way that it seemed like the cutting had like a two part procedure of going backwards. One was a blackout and one was sort of like a white exposure flash. And it would always alternate that the cuts would either be black or white back and forth so that Mm -hmm. it, it sort of was consistent in that way. And I spent the whole time trying to figure out if there was math involved, if there was an exact rhythm, but I would notice certain times, you know, certain extensions would be a little longer than other ones. And the way that he's able to um, to be very tactile with this, uh, he would basically edited it to his responses. So even if he had, I don't think he could have even answered the actors when they were confused as to what this actually was going to be. But I feel like his master plan um, developed even further in the um, in the sort of production stage of it. And his playing with that, um, I mean, I, I think it actually felt um, that in that way, it reminded me of Brackage saying that he was saying on one of his remarks on on the disc um, about how he was there was some computer program he couldn't understand because he couldn't operate it in real time in a tactile way, the way he can with film image. And as opposed to something like Zorn's Lemma or even Nostalgia, which requires I'm going to I plan out this very clear sequence of images and think about Zorn's Lemma, how much actually had to be photographed to achieve it. Um, it does seem like this. It's a very easy thing to photograph that is entirely developed in the post-production process, which was an interesting change of pace, considering also then um, the film that's between these two, uh, Poetic Justice. It was produced in the following year, but fits as the second part of this cycle. Mm-hmm. As another film that um, definitely recommended um, to see this as well, but required, uh, you know, the entire making of the film is clear, but a lot of what you're seeing is happening before the camera rolls. So 
Um, the camera rolling, like in nostalgia in those two films, is sort of seeing the end of something. We're seeing the moment when it really reaches its, reaches its fruition. Uh, what was shot for Critical Mass was really just the raw fodder to create something else. I think what what always impresses me about certainly th- certainly this film, but Frampton's films in general, is that he was he was doing things that could easily be done nowadays with nonlinear editing software, but he was doing that just using a flatbed editor or yeah. or a movieola, yeah. wh- wh- however you use to put it together. So it's kind of interesting how very much uh, dare I say ahead of his time. Uh, that he was in kind of anticipating where like doing things that the, that tools later on could make you achieve more easily, more efficiently than, than in the past. So I thought that was kind of interesting to note. Yeah. Yeah. Breaking down the, um, you know, the mutual berating and, and insults and cuss words and everything else into their kind of component parts, <laughs> you know, the, the syllables, the, the, the raising of the voice tone, the inflections, the, you know, the kind of butting in and cutting the other person off before they can finish their thought as the argument is kind of in full boil there. I, I really just found that, that kind of, um, kind of granular breakdown of, of these, this kind of, you know, verbal, lashing uh really really fascinating as you kind of just you know you're, you're taking these these kind of verbal assaults and and you know kind of just reducing them down to, to, to little bits and pieces and, and and you know sort of juxtaposing them against each other to kind of just underscore sort of the absurdity and the futility and yet it's a process that just has to be gone through. I mean, you're right. There's nobody who's going to win this argument. Nothing's really going to be resolved. It's just a process of venting that, that needs to take place because of the, uh, you know, the emotions that have been stirred up, uh, you know, by the action of, of the other person, whether it's the boyfriend who doesn't really report his go about, you know, his whereabouts and whether he's been up to, even in the in, in the face of intense pressure to disclose what's going on, uh, and his resentment, you know, likewise of the girlfriend who just won't let him be. He, she's just trying to pry into his business, and he doesn't want to get cornered. Doesn't want to have to, you know, spill the beans. Whether he's really hiding something that he's ashamed of, or if he genuinely feels, hey, this is my private life, and I shouldn't have to tell everything to this woman who I just happen to live with, you know? And then there's the argument of who's paying for the apartment and just all that stuff, stupid stuff. But it is, it is, you know, very compelling and, and very much uh, typical of, of whether it's the particular elements of this conflict or just the other uh, kind of emotions that we attach to, you know, I'm right and they're wrong and I'm going to settle this once and for all. And, and and to what effect or for what purpose. And I guess that's kind of what goes back to my question of what's the point. Well, the autobiography, exactly, like I said, hip hop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hip hop. <laughs> how, how does this, uh, how does autobiography? I mean, I think that it's, uh, I, I can read into the, the setting because obviously it's not his script, but his, um, right. his setting. And I think that, you know, maybe, maybe he, there's a bit, there's him in, in the male character. Uh, is sort of the assumption one can make as, you know, an artist type, it feels like, an, not an unreasonable assumption. But um, in doing this, he's able to, to show the futility of the argument in an autobiographical way, or even of arguments like it, because um, for all the times that you, you kind of 
you're hanging, waiting for the next word. There are times when it's repeating. And you're like, I just want to hear how the sentence like, continues or where this is going. Really, more often, you're stuck. You're stuck in the rut. And there, there are occasional outbursts that are grating that you then have to hear multiple times, knowing that after you've heard <laughs> not that's not the last time you've heard that person say that annoying, loud thing. And um, it's a nice, it's an interesting way for him as an editor to be reckoning with perhaps um, dialogues he's had before in the past and relationships he's had. And um, in that sense, it's, this this seems like it, it is. Um, really a, a, a good follow-up to Poetic Justice, which seems to be a very relationship-oriented, romantic relationship-oriented. I mean, is relationships he's having? Because um, doesn't he not describe in the remarks that this was based off of a recent breakup that he just had? Right. Yeah. And uh, and that's actually a, 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 the the big premise of this whole thing, I think, is to to have taken a step back from Zorn's lemma um, and, and approach things a little differently. And I think uh, um, those remarks for these particular features, I, I could listen to them all day. And I, I, I hope that somewhere there's somehow an unedited full audio that those are called from, as we usually expect with some of these supplements, uh, because um, his, his ability to describe it, I think, uh, and hearing what it would have been like to be in that room and watch it with those people, I think is the most exciting and present element of this edition that it allows the works to feel right there with you and, um, and relatable, I think, because of that. What do we think about the visuals of this? I mean, we've got these two characters against a very stark white wall with bold, dark shadows cast behind them. I mean, it obviously must've been, pretty bright, you know, unfiltered lights just, you know, glaring down. Yeah, single light them. source. Yeah, he, he could have shot this in any number of different ways. I, I think about, you know, scenes from a marriage or something like that, where you've got the intense close-ups on each person's face, the cutting back and forth. This is just basically a one-shot. Uh, what about the visual uh, aesthetic that, that Frampton used here? I mean, I think he's uh, more interested in treating the two actual actors uh, the same way he's interested in in treating the the blips of of film sprockets and uh, it, and they're not cigarette burns, but there's all sorts of like yeah. blips and blops of of images and icons and stuff that you associate with running a film strip through a moviola, right? Like the print gives you all of these things at the header and footer to indicate the beginning of the reel, the end of the reel, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So he, I think he is uh, treating them with the, by, by just making this stark black and white image. And, and those icons are, is equally black and white that he's sort of treating them the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty low-fi. I mean, even if, even in the Blu-ray, it just feels like a very washed out overlit image. You know, you, you can see the characters, but uh, they really are almost abstracted by just the, you know, the the stark, you know, black and white. You know, there's no there's no real kind of shade or nuance of gray in all of this. And it's sixteen it millimeter feels, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that gets back to the idea that all he wanted was film that he could play with. Yeah. Um, it's the content it's wasn't necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
All right. Well, are there other final comments or, or thoughts people want to get off their chest on critical mass? Do we have anything to argue about here? <laughs> yeah, I think we've had critical mass with this discussion. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, I just wanted to mention, though, my, my partner is from New York. He does not act like that. I was just making a joke. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> just wanted to, to put that in there. No, we're all good. Act like that. I've seen him act like that. I've seen him come around, <laughs> talking to his thing. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) all right well listeners these films are available on the criterion channel so uh if you don't want to quite lay down the coin for the hollis frampton odyssey uh, i think that's a mistake i think this is a a great addition that really uh, not only deserves uh the support because i think we do like to you know, get more of this type of thing from Criterion. And, and uh, even though Mr. Franklin isn't with us to, you know, materially benefit, I think his work is really important and really unique and, and to me, extremely um, enjoyable, rewatchable, and rewarding of, uh, you know, a, a, you know, kind of a closer study and, and uh, you know, immersion, if you will. Uh, so uh, get the disc if you can, if you're looking to kind of wait and see then uh, check it out on the channel and, and see uh, if you want to go further down the Hollis Frampton uh, road there. And uh, Any other final comments guys before we wrap it up? Well, I was going to say, I don't know exactly when this is going to be released, but I mean, the sale's going on right now. So yeah, yeah. Barnes and Noble, 50% off Criterion. <laughs> you, 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 yeah. you need to support Criterion. You have to support the big box bookstore now. Uh, so they don't go if out of But if you're listening to this later, I am very sorry. <laughs> well, there, there, are, there will be flash sales. There will be other. Oh, I know. Sales, it's uh, yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and if you're a Canadian, it's unobstructed view, and it's forty percent off sale right now. Well, I... okay. Well, I'll try to get my editing going on this right away. So that we can <laughs> hit the deadline. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a break, uh, Jason. We're going to you know, let you go on this one. The rest of the crew will be back right as on. we talk about Stan Brackage's uh, "The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes." So, thanks again, Jason, for yeah. joining us. And listeners, hang in there. Thank you for having me. The best is yet to come. All right. Well, here we go. Oh, man, that's Brackage kind of ice right cold, on the David. corner. That's ice cold. <laughs> the best is yet to come. Well, not about you, but the. Whew, well, guys, that. I'm going to head out so the good stuff can start. <laughs> Uh, well, keep listening. Jason. Oh, I know. You'll, you'll, I don't know. It'll all make sense. I have <laughs> okay. no doubt in my mind. All right. Well, we're going to fade this one to black, and we'll be back right after the break. Toast and marmalade for tea, sailing ships upon the sea, aren't lovelier than you, or the games I see you play. More lovely than the day When the sun is in your eyes I see through your disguise All the games I see you play You more lovely than the day When the sun is in your eyes I see through your disguise All the games I see you play Toast and marmalade for tea Say 
All right, so we've already done introductions. We're back for the uh, final segment of this uh, season-ending episode, and uh, boy, what a what a capstone it is! Stan Brackage, the act of seeing with one's own eyes, which is the uh, English translation of the Latin root word of autopsy, and that's what we're about to uh, step into. And um, yeah, it's it's a pretty unforgettable film it's a quite an experience to to sit through it to take it all in uh so my primary question is guys how many stars do you give this thing is this criterion worthy (laughs) yeah do you know what not only is it criterion worthy but it's worthy of us because i i'm starting i i feel like there is something that is a uh a derek brad will movie at this point <laughs> because we've done like we've done like three of these in a row now even though i don't think we were all in the same room for macbeth but it's like it, we're we're just constantly in the same circle of like what we like and um and of what we're drawn to for those of you that don't know we volunteer david just doesn't choose people for uh specific no, ones. We, we say we want to be involved and i i remember um when i first saw this on the list this would have been a while back way while back and i uh I just said to myself, I've seen it. So I felt obligated to be one of the people because um, I know a lot of people will choose not to see this ever. Same. I'm the same way. When I saw it on that list, I thought I've seen this movie and I don't know that a lot of people are, are going to sign up for this. So somebody has to talk about this. Well, thanks guys. I really appreciate <laughs> not having to handle this we'll all of my own lonesome there. Yeah. And we, well, we saw it know. again. We watched it again. For, I know. Yeah. We, you know we, we were excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, um, I'm, I'm fascinating to know why. I mean, yeah, having seen it, knowing it's there, knowing it's something that's going to be covered, that's, it's very commendable. And again, I appreciate your friendship and your, uh, you know, your willingness to, to, to dig into this one with me. Uh, like I say, this is a, this is a, a pretty, well, it's, it's emotional. It's, it's, uh, it's real. It's stark. It's kind of, amazing and you know potentially at least uh, for a lot of folks quite disturbing uh, to me it is it's a clarifying document it's um you know like so many of other brackages work i mean william you just uh, uh mentioned wedlock house and intercourse there's also uh, was it window water baby moving uh the 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 film about childbirth uh, when his when his wife gave birth to one of their children uh he gets right down in there and and gets about uh, documenting this very fundamental business of life, uh, whether it's giving birth or or um, the uh, the aftermath of, of life, uh, and and what happens specifically in uh, in a morgue uh, in in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, a city that was also referenced in the previous segment. There, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. um, this is part of a trilogy of films that uh, Stan Brackage did. And I guess if I can invent one little piece of frustration is the fact that those two other films are not included for some reason in the Criterion edition, whether that's the original DVD uh, by Brackage or the uh, kind of more maxed out Blu-ray set uh, 
volumes one and two, which I think are actually three Blu-ray discs just chock full of so many films that Brackage did over the course of his very unique uh, singular career. But the other two films, one of which has to do with, I think, police officers. And I, I, well, I should be a lot better researched than that. But Yeah, yeah, uh, he was writing with yeah. police officers. Right with, mm-hmm. And what was the other one, too? There was another one that's in there. But I can't remember the subject matter at the moment. So in any case, this is the third one. And it is about people who work in the... He was know, at a hospital. A hospital. Oh, okay. right, so, right. Yeah. So, so you know, he, he's dealing with some of the, the darker aspects of, of human existence. But this is, this is, I won't even say it's dark. I don't really want to focus on the morbidity of it all, even though it's it's pretty alarming what you see actually happening to these dead bodies. And I guess maybe we could just start there. The, the profession of an autopsy, I don't know if it's a doctor. What is it? A technician? It's, uh, it's... Mortician, I think. Mor- mortician, yeah. right. So I was honestly quite amazed at how torn up these bodies get. I, I, I guess I've never really studied the art of autopsy or what happens in, in that process, but it's like these bodies, at least some of them, really get sliced up into really mangled. It's like, are they going to put them back together? Are they going to have proper funerals? Or what? what's the story behind this? So I, I, that's one angle of approach. Hmm. But I mean, there's so many different ways we can come at this. Right. I, I was getting the impression. Well, I guess I'll may I give the history of, of, of the film for me uh, in terms of uh, sure. my experience. Yeah, I, please. Do. I yeah. didn't want to see it for a long time. And I remember when I finally bought the box set, I felt like now I was now I was now doomed to see it because now that it's <laughs> now that it's in my collection, it's something I will eventually see. And I'd been putting it off for a long time. I hadn't even cracked the set. And um, I had a r- very dear friend who is the closest person I know to a sort of surgical medical scientist, um, mm-hmm. someone who has had to open up like a like a, a, a brain of some kind. So I said mm-hmm. I said to her if she would be willing to watch it. We actually made a night out of it where um, we hung out. We kind of like watched some Seinfeld and got stoned in order to kind of cool like the energy of the mm-hmm. room because mm-hmm. I was so mm-hmm. I was so scared. Kept the windows open and then just watched it in silence, occasionally muttering to each other mm-hmm. because I kind of needed someone there with me when I saw it. I was, I was afraid of what it would be. And I was afraid that in a way being alone, I, I wouldn't be accountable. I, I might even close my eyes or look away or, or whatnot. So to have somebody there who could who could kind of get me a scientific insight and who actually had answers to questions that I, I could posit to them about what was going on. It's about four years ago now, so I don't remember any of the answers. But um, <laughs> I had a lot of time to say like, well, why are they doing that? Why is this happening? And, and sort of taking it all um, piece by piece like that. Um, seeing that people are more, are not their bodies in a way that, that people right, are more right. than just um, that physical presence so that when they start being opened up, in fact, as their, their more common features, their outward features are less and less visible. They seem more and more like substance, like um, maybe it's too, too cruel a term, but meat felt like the right word four mm-hmm, years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, no, that's appropriate. That, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that there's nothing different between that. And when you see liver on a hook, you know, like what, right. what, what's what these things are, but watching, watching it again. Now I, I did have an even deeper and, and grander appreciation for it, mainly because I, I think I got to watch it alone and in absolute silence and to be with it, it, it's still very difficult at times, I think just because of 
the intensity of some of the images. And, and frankly, I think the most intense images are uh, facial features, which are, I think, very wisely uh, faces aren't ever shown in their fullness, which I think is the kind of thing that I, I would tell people who are worried about seeing it. I think that it would be too haunting to have an unwavering uh, close-up on a human face uh, post-mortem. Though those moments of partial faces, I think, that linger for a little longer than I like are tough. And um, those are the, the most shocking spots to me. Uh, for the, the moments in this film where we really sort of see what we're made of as people, I think it, it, it can be more compelling and um, interesting to to to, uh, to dive into there, and I think that the uh, are almost less scary, maybe less less terrifying, less disturbing now that they've been dehumanized in a way. Yeah, I think that was part of the terms of agreement. Yeah, that, that was the condition. Yeah, Brackage got the access so that you can't identify or anything that would identify these as individual humans, and that's out of respect for the family and just again for the viewer. I think you're right. Looking at you know the the stone cold dead face of a corpse, even if you would never know who that person is, what their story was, where they came from, that just it's too much. You know, it, there's there's a lot here, but I I think it's is it tasteful, tactful? I'm not sure what the right word is, but I think it's it's a proper document of uh, from an artistic aesthetic point of view of the process of investigating uh, a dead body and perhaps learning what happened to it to cause the, the death of that person. I just wanted to add uh, about the face that like in 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 having to obscure uh, the actual face of the corpses that we see, uh, he creates some really like compelling, interesting compositions in in the way he shoots the face, where like the the title, the act of seeing with one's own eyes, all of the eyes that we see in this film are open. And all of them are are like at the bottom of a frame, and there's a great deal of negative space that Brackage leaves. So uh, it, it kind of it suggests uh, it really just suggests other ideas, like you know, what is this? What is within this negative space? Is this the spirit of the person? Like, kind of, I mean, you don't have to necessarily go that far, but it does uh, lead it lead to some sort of interesting connections if if you want to explore it that way. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I remember noting the um, remarks that Brackage gave and kind of what compelled them to make him in the first place. And it was, it was out of a, a fascination with, with death. And he, and he admits that his, his earliest brushings with it were uh, apparently there was, apparently there was a dead body that he, that he saw. And then the adults like quickly covered it up. So it's so, yeah, so like a street situation, like yeah, a dead street body situation. was found so, out in public. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a very kind of, it actually kind of reminds me of um, stand by me in a way where, you know, you, you hear about somebody being dead and it's like, Oh, it's kind of cool. And, and there's a little bit of that immaturity, but then he admits that as he was into his forties, he started, he wanted to actually face death. So he was looking for, an opportunity to be able to do that. And, and so, and then being in Pittsburgh was his chance to be able to do so. And that in turn reminded me of a famous anecdote involving Akira Kurosawa, where when he was 13, the great um, Kenta earthquake of 1923 mm, happened mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. and his older brother, um, Heigo took him to see the aftermath. So you see, so you see corpses everywhere and a young Kira, uh, Akira 
wanted to turn away, but Hiego insisted he look at it. And mm. it's it's been commented on that that's probably the moment where he started to become an artist. And probably the lesson he got from that is is that sometimes you have to face unpleasant truths. So mm-hmm. in a way, I think this was this was uh, Brackage's equivalent of the great Kenta earthquake and in, in, in being in that being in that mortuary and seeing the bodies uh you know cleaned up and then there's um you know all, all the things that happened to them and 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 he even admits that it was it was a it was a tough you know it, it was a it was a tough venture for him and and i applaud him for sticking that long for it and, and getting all those images because i th- i think it, it's kind of it, it's it's sort of in a strange way it's it's to all of our benefits you know, yeah, I, I've, yeah. I've said many a time that the, the great thing about cinema is that it allows as a maker, it allows someone else to see the world as you see it. And that mm-hmm. is and that is one of the ways that you can generate empathy. So if if the image that you're seeing is death or you know post death, then it gives you a, a better appreciation of, you know, of life and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, and, and fitting it into this much larger context of just existence and and the you know the the phases, if you will, that a a human being goes through to the point where after their life has ended, there is still this this remnant, this this artifact, this body that sticks around <laughs> uh, beyond um, the time of consciousness, awareness of volition, and all of that. Um, and of course there's, and, and then Brackage has a distinctive way of, of putting his films together. Uh, as, as we've already said, this is a silent film. There's, there's no soundtrack. Uh, that's pretty common at this stage of Brackage's career in particular. You know, he, he, he really emphasized the visual image, but it's also the way that he edits it. It's also how he positions his camera. He could have taken a much more, you know, a rigid clinical view, you know, kind of just watching the process unfold from some sort of a, you know, respectful distance, kind of stepping away and letting the, uh, the, the morticians do their work, uh, you know, focusing on the technical side, if you will, and, and not getting us right into that kind of nitty gritty, you know, bloody and, and, you know, really kind of grotesque aspect of, you know, cutting a body open, um, getting into its interior, uh, peeling the the skin off of a scalp, and and uh, you know, undoing a person's face. I mean, again, it's just it's pretty wild and and pretty um, unforgettable to see the process that uh, occurs with a dead person, and perhaps and probably not every dead person. If the cause of death is known. If it's, uh, you know, due to, you know, either medical reasons or, or quote unquote, natural causes, I guess my assumption is that not every person who dies has their body uh, flayed open to, to the extent that we see in, in many cases. But we see burn victims. We see people who uh, there's a lot of blood on the skin that seems to be maybe the cause of caused by a, a murder or an assault or, or an accident of some sort where they've been severely mangled um the the skin there's a, there's a smoker's I mean, lung 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, yeah, right. So you're seeing people with, with cancer or other types of diseases and, and perhaps they just have to get in and figure out, you know, this person maybe had multiple maladies, different afflictions, but what was the thing that actually killed them? So again, it, it kind of makes me curious. I mean, I've never been one to get into, you know, medicine or, or that type of science as, as much, or, or even the, uh, uh, forensic, uh, you know, uh, true crime or that those types of things. It's just not been a subject that interests me, but this certainly st- stirred up a lot of curiosity <laughs> about what happens to bodies um, uh, when, when they go through this process. So that, that was one piece, but you know, again, the, the I don't know if, if I, I don't, I don't think Brackage did any treatment of the, of the film, but there was that one body that was like green like what, what what's going on there you know it's just really i know kind of yeah i know that he used several different stocks at yeah the end. i so, did read mm-hmm. that right so, that, so i and i there is um well the one instance of, of green i remember specifically is the inside of a skull after yeah, removal of a brain that. and mm-hmm, you see mm-hmm. a similar image if not the same um person the same body later with a different color palette so i think that some of those mm-hmm. effects do seem to sort of be just in camera um, okay. What ends up happening just with the the film as a shot? Because I don't, I don't think we're green on the inside. But the thing about this film is, you spend a lot of it going, "Is that really what's in us?" I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. as as an as a as an autobiography of every person possibly watching it, um, you uh, I mean there there was a gland discovered in our in our heads this year that we didn't know about that, that people realized that there was some sort of gland in the face in this in the in somewhere in our head mm. that has some function that is separate from the things that it used to be, you know, assumed to be part of. And um, it leads you to really understand how much of a mystery um, what's inside us actually is. The things that, I mean, I don't know if any of you have the sensation when you're you're lying awake at night and you're just listening to your own heartbeat, wondering Mm -hmm. how it doesn't just stop at any moment. It just seems like such a precarious, fragile thing. Seeing how how easily (laughs) um, rib cages can be cut and, and yeah, separated yeah. and opened here. I mean, it, it, it's, it's quite a shocking thing that, I mean, it's even more shocking as, as a document to think that people have this job every day, but one assumes one gets desensitized to it and is able to proceed. But I, I, I think that the, the procedure through which you become somebody who works in any sort of post-death field, whether you're a coroner or, or, or you work as um, an undertaker or something, I, I just... I've, I've never been able to comprehend that. And, and I've, I've been lucky in life to not have had any sort of near body experiences that I think would traumatize me for life. And um, my fears that this film would traumatize me for life clearly didn't happen. And I mean, I watched right before going to sleep this last time and mm-hmm. was a little scared, but then felt you didn't have a nightmare. didn't have a, I, I, I think that the actual act of seeing the film um, may stick with you. Uh, but ultimately, I think this is a, a very uh, humanistic experience, even even mm-hmm. though you don't really see the humans that are the subjects, so to speak. In a way, I guess you do see human subjects in the employees, but mm-hmm. the human subjects of the um, the corpses, um, they're the, this is this is no more true than than what you're seeing. I think that that's why it shouldn't have any rep- representa- uh, reputation for being sensational or needlessly grotesque. I think it's right. actually quite tasteful. There are, there, there are a few moments that feel cheeky, but I think they're almost circumstantial. Like one particular uh, coroner who who walks in front of a face 
and you keep hoping he doesn't walk past it again because you don't want to reveal what's hiding hiding behind him and some of the more um mm. sort of clever framings but but ultimately i mean it really um if it shows me one thing also is it's an appreciation um for um uh practical effects when they're done right because um, how many times have <laughs> yeah, we seen yeah. you know the, the the dead body in in the morgue scene in a film and mm. how many times has it looked like this i mean very infrequently and i think it, it's right it's, yeah the, the angle of a, how a foot just sort of flops down or when they turn the body and just what a literally a stiff it is yeah. you know and 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 uh, you just recognize the, the heaviness and the rigidity and and the inertness of a of a body once life has left it of course which makes life itself just seem all the more kind of miraculous <laughs> and, and and i think that the big shock for me was not understanding that um our our skin our faces our muscles are uh, not quite as attached to ourselves as we almost expect. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that it could be quite, it, it could be almost um, as easy as taking a mask off if you have the right equipment. And um, and yeah, truly, I don't, I don't totally understand what these, you know, um, in, intense brain removals are, were really to the purpose of. But I know nothing was faked. Nothing was done to appeal to the camera. Um, so. It, to the thought that this, these things happen every day around the whole world um, is the first shock I think one one should get over to in order to get to the next step because um, it's very hard once you start thinking about who these people are. And I'll admit, maybe I've been a little less cynical uh, since four years ago, but I actually had, I spent more of the film this time uh, as by myself thinking about the people we are seeing, which was sort of new for me in the rewatch. Well, um, so uh, if I jumping just jumping off of some of the things you mentioned there, uh, so my stepfather is actually a funeral director, or at least was a funeral director. Um, so I never actually had seen him do any embalmings, but he would describe them to me, and that there's a different process uh, with bodies that have been un undergone an autopsy than ones that haven't. So. Um, a lot of the things that you had mentioned about, you know, they really cut them apart. Uh, the putting together is a lot of the funeral director's job. So when they mm. receive a body that has been uh, an autopsy is done on it, um, they have the funeral directors or undertakers, as they used to be called, do have the skill sets to in order to hide all of those uh, those procedures so that the the families don't see them. I mean, the ultimate job, right, is to make them look like they're sleeping. Right. Uh, so, um, and I remember uh, just just being subjected to bodies. I just remember once visiting the funeral home where he worked at, and my mom, we were just going to, she just had to talk to him or something, and she just said, you know, come inside. My mom is a, a, a florist, so both of them have worked pretty closely in the funeral industry. Um, mm -hmm. so she just sort of brought me inside and it's like, it was more just an idea that she just wanted me to be used to bodies. I didn't know any of these people. Then they were just, you know, people viewing, right. And the families would be there in each sort of room. And I, we were just going through to meet up with my stepdad for something, but it was just that idea of being, being used to seeing a dead body. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I think when I see this film, that's the experience that I remember, um, we had talked a lot about about grotesque, right? And you talked a lot about it being disturbing, and and it is those things. But 
Brackage never puts that label on what you're seeing. That is something that we bring to this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the most incredible things about this film. It's kind of a memento mori for me, where it's, it's very matter of fact. And in a lot of, like what you had described, William, a lot of, you know, horror movies we see uh, where these sorts of situations are in, you know, the movie Seven, uh, where, you know, a lot of, uh, Fincher got a lot of uh, what he got out of Seven from being influenced by Stan Brackage films. Um, but that, that kind of idea is he's, you know, you know, we're making those seem dark and mysterious and they're part of a thriller or they're part of a horror movie, some sort of genre. But Brackage doesn't care about any of this. He's presenting right. this is what it is. And and he even even says in his his little spiel on the on the, the Blu-ray, um, like if you've seen um, all of us have seen many Stan Brackage films, he's all about the visual stuff flying through the screen uh, layers upon layers of technique and film strips and all that kind of stuff um, to give you, you know, these images that are full of superimpositions and complicated images flying at you. And he he says that, you know, he had the urge to add that kind of stuff here and he removed it all. Um, so I think it, it, he that that idea is in his brain too, where like, I am not telling you how to feel about this. I want you to come up with your own way of how you feel about this. And so, so for me personally, I don't know, like I, I don't find this as, uh, as disturbing of a film, like absolutely, you know, no fault to people who do absolutely. But mm-hmm. like, I just find this as a very uh, necessary uh, film to remind us all of, of our mor- mortality. Yeah, I, I I think that's really well stated, Brad, and and a great observations. This this is not an exploitive film, mm-hmm. whereas it, when you think about thrillers, horror films, anything that sort of sensationalizes death, and 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 I'll say those are exploitive, not necessarily meant as a criticism or as a denunciation of that technique, but what they're doing is they're playing off the the shocking idea of like, wow, what if that happened to me? Or what if that happened to somebody that I loved or cared about to, to see their body mutilated, to see them, you know, killed and, and all the fear and panic and everything that would precede the, this attack. Um, to, to me, this, this film is in a, in a strange way, life affirming or, or it's, it's, a it, it affirms reality in that it uh, it gets us in touch with a, an experience with a dimension of life that I think in our society, you know, I'm talking about modern, you know, 21st or 20th century uh, civilization, we're very often, at least the majority of us, are, are greatly distanced from, you know. Uh, Brackage himself said that he had never, other than that one experience, had never seen a dead body, which to me seems like, maybe he's never even gone to a funeral. And I went for many, many years of my life without going to any funerals just because nobody I knew had passed away. Or even if they had, I just either wasn't at the funeral or wasn't close enough to the casket to actually see the dead body. But, you know, that's not how life has been for the majority of people who've ever lived, you know, if you think about all of history. And I think uh, our our society and the, it, its technology and, and just the way we're kind of socialized, uh, how we spend our time, kind of pulls us away and in some ways kind of creates this state of denial about death. And now in your experience, Brad, with, with it being part of your, you know, your, your family's livelihood, so to speak, um, you're in that 
in that space much more frequently. And so that awareness is there. But I think for a lot of people, it's just, you know, you just block it out. You don't even want to think about it. And this film sort of is a sort of a gentle tap on the shoulder, but saying, you know, literally see with one's own eyes. This is this in in a sense is our fate. This, this will happen to each of us at some point, uh, maybe not as a, in a Morgan Pittsburgh, but, um, that, that transition that we go to when, when our, you know, consciousness you know, departs from the body, whatever else happens from there, that's a matter of faith and speculation. But, but the reality is that our bodies will be left behind in some capacity. And, uh, this is a chance to grapple with that and in, in a very low key and naturalistic unblinking way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there, and there's, there's a sort of, sorry, there's a sort of a rich history of this kind of stuff, right? Like, um, uh, I mean, after this, you have uh, Body Worlds. Do you rem- guys remember that? I can't remember who the artist was, but we would gather, uh, people would leave their bodies to him and he would plasticize them. And then they were these exhibits. Oh, that yeah, I've seen that. Yeah I, I, yeah, I don't remember the name Body World, but I've seen those where it's like the human body on display with all of its musculature, right. skeletons, nervous system, all of that, right? And you can even trace this back further to like Rembrandt's mm-hmm. painting of, of the autopsy, right? When it, these kind of things had never seen before, uh, been seen before. And, and you're, all of a sudden you're, you're asking an enormous uh, a group of people, you know, like a mass audience, uh, general public to confront their own you know, their mortality. This is what we're made of. Even when we're alive, mm-hmm. this is, this is what's inside of you. There is, you know, like you said, everything else is, is subject to, to faith and that kind of thing. But as far as what we know, this is what you got. So, uh, I, there's, a there's always historically been sort of a sobering, uh, uh, retaliation, I guess. Not sorry. There, uh, yes, there has been a retaliation, but sort of a sobering awakening that happens with people when artists like these guys subject subject mass audiences to this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I've I've noticed that in our society, I think in our culture, for a good probably since after World War II, has done everything except except death. Like we've, we've been, if you think about the stages of grief, we've been afraid of death. We've been angry at death. Um, we've denied death and we've even tried bargaining with death, (laughs) but we've never been able to really accept it. And I do appreciate works that do kind of compel us to accept it. Like this, this is your, this is your end fate. This is what, this is what's going to eventually happening to you that's this is the one guarantee you have in life is that is that one day you're going to die but um i don't think that's something you should be afraid of but you just have to accept that and uh and yeah i I, it it can be very shocking to see all that at first but then eventually you but then you just stare right at it and and you kind Mm -hmm. of accept it for what it is and then in a way you kind of make peace with it you know, in the end. So, I mean, it's what, what we said earlier about meat, right? That is, that is our bot. That is how we react to this film when you get further, you know, long enough in it, right? That all the cutting and sawing, it just kind of eventually just feels like meat. Um, 
and and that's not a that's not a negative i wouldn't consider that a negative or reductive uh term for it it's just that's just the reaction that we get and that's how that's how we are processing what we're seeing in a way that you know we don't go nuts over it that's that's (laughs) just what it is (laughs) that helps us get through it i mean i i personally would hope that there's never going to be a saw blade going through my skull with smoke coming off the blade, but <laughs> right. uh, you know, who, who exactly knows how that's all going to go down. So there right. are some elements to it. It's just like, wow, they really do that. Or, or what was, you know, what is the story behind this? And, and even some of the, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the, you know, the commercial aspects, the people like William was saying, who wind up with this as their job, like, wow, what, what kind of chain of events led to saying, yep, I'm going to be the guy who, you know, peels the skin off of a face or, you know, or, you know, and, and the black guy at the end mopping up the, the floor. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, yeah, wow. There's a little bit of a, a, a social statement being made there about the people who this is just, this is just their grind. You know, this is just their, their way to put bread on, on the table, you know, and to, to, to take home a, a bit of money and, and have job security and, you know, make a living uh, by processing uh, the remains of the dead. Uh, so yeah, just a lot of aspects opening up there. Go ahead. I just wanted to say uh, that connects me to another I, a thing I wanted to talk about is that um, what's fascinating is the editing of this film and that um, you had just sort of mentioned it. There is a story being told here amongst right. everything that we're seeing. There is a very clear linear progression. Um, the beginning of the film and and the end of the film where uh, a man presumably a uh you know coroner or or whoever is dictating something into an audio tape um at the very end so this suggests that we're sort of watching like the day of you know we don't really have you know yeah it's a it's a shift we don't really have an idea of uh you know how how the actual chronology went of what he filmed but uh Brackage edits it as as a narrative, and and throughout the film, um, it escalates. Right, we're starting off with measuring of body yep, parts. Yep. Um, rulers are pressed against skin to measure various things, um, and from there, then we are introduced to tools cutting, um, and it gets more and more extreme. Right. Um, First, yeah. it's just flesh being cut, and then we get the bone saws out, and now we're removing brains. Now we remove, uh, you know, rib cages, and we're removing organs. Uh, later on in the film, we're actually dissecting the, the organs themselves, so we get to see that as well. Um, until... Dropping things in a bucket, you know, a little, yeah. little, little you know, white uh, you know, Rubbermaid tray or something like that, and the blood splattering is like, wow, there, this really is just handling meat, you know. And and uh, and again, what you said, referring to what you said earlier, Brackage doesn't flinch. He's getting us in the nitty gritty, and I I kind of really appreciate that because um, I understand how autopsies work now from watching this. You know, the 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 removal of blood, you constantly are seeing syringes remove blood so that they can have a you know better view and get at the organs and it's you know just a cleaner work environment Mm -hmm. there's a a suctioning thing where it suctions up all the blood it reminds me of when i go to the dentist and they stick the suctioning thing in my mouth (laughs) to keep the saliva from interfering with their work right it's the same sort of of premise 
Um, and you had just mentioned the guy mopping the floor, like even, even, uh, you know, the, the custodial staff are getting uh, a part of this story. They're in this story somewhere of what happens to the people who have to clean up, um, the blood splatter after the coroners have done their job. Um, and, and I kind of think that that's fascinating. I, I just think it's fascinating that, that Brackage, because um, he very rarely tells stories in his films. Right. Um, and this, this seems like such a, um, an outlier in his filmography, but, I, but in, a, in a great way. Um, that not only is it something you've never seen before and it's not filled with all of the like, you know, bits of stuff that fly across the screen in all of his films, um, but it also has a story, which is like unlike what he's what he's done well i think he's respecting his material here i mean he he's got a particular mission and 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 it's for his own personal growth and understanding but he also knows he's conveying something to you know other people uh, whether they may be you know uh, cinephiles interested in the avant-garde and the art of cinema you know the way he is and, and many of his you know close followers but but like with the with the uh the window water baby moving that was a film that was shown in um you know parenting classes or for for expecting mothers and fathers to say oh you know what here's a here's a film that will help prepare you for what your spouse is about your you know you, you or your your wife is about to go through um as as she gives birth and so you know there's a public service being rendered here and and this is probably not a film that was you know, widely distributed as the one about childbirth was, but I think Brackage understands that you know this is this is not him just kind of going out on his you know um, very idiosyncratic artistic limb to create his own personal version of cinema. There was there was a larger uh, kind of mission being addressed here, and I really respect him for that. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm sure there are other documentaries and certainly in medical school, there's probably training films that are made uh, that document a lot of this type of thing, but from a much more technical uh, aspect you know, of how to specifically do particular things that have to be done in an autopsy. This is much more impressionistic, but I think it's, it's very powerful, you know, uh, for anybody who wants to put themselves through the Half hour, not was it about 45, 50 minutes? How long is it? Or is it about a half it's hour? A 30, it's just 30, 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty short. And that's the thing. I don't, I don't think he, he overdoes it either. He's not overstaying his welcome. He's not subjecting you to, you know, an hour and a half of this stuff. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, night and fog in a way in which you can kind of come to grips with mm-hmm. the, with the ferocious horror of the, uh, Holocaust without, having to sit through nine hours of show, <laughs> which is a, a whole different thing um, in its own way. And I, I'm actually, I've, I've been watching Showa this week. So well, what a, what a, what a, what a vivid, <laughs> well, you know, and, and I mean, an, an absolutely devastating, powerful uh, work of art. It's so necessary, so important uh, for people to come to grips with that one way or another and and that Shoah has a very unique way of telling that story um but sometimes it's that it's that short concise impact that can really you know again open one's eyes i have a couple of um quotes that that kind of support mm-hmm. everything we've been talking about um sydney uh, p adam sydney who uh wrote a lot about uh, avant-garde film um had said to bart testa this quote uh, that after a dozen years of intensely suggest, uh, subjective filmmaking, 
Brackage was responding to a felt danger of solipsism, I guess, in its mm. own work, and that mm. making the Pittsburgh trilogy allowed him the relief of turning his lens on what we hold in common. And mm. I think that's that's a very uh, insightful uh, view here on sort of how this also stands in relation to his, the rest of his work and kind of why it was necessary for him. I'll clarify something which I think might, might be surprising is that um, Brackage says... Uh, in the act of seeing with one's own eyes, you see everything exactly in the order in which it was shot, which um, I guess is, is is believable, but it almost means that I think that maybe a lot of the editing drama that Brad um, senses in this um, well, certainly can come from, I think, the idea that he's not, he's excluding footage, certainly. So there's a major editing happening there. But the integrity of, um, well, actually, there's a quote about that. Hang on. This was uh, Juan Carlos Case said, the textual integrity of Brackage's editing process seems, for the most part, to have respected the bodily integrity of its subjects. And I think that because you do see a linear progression, I mean, there's even the moment halfway through when these sort of victims of violence who all seem to be younger and, and, and mostly people of color, which is also another uh, stark realization that it seems mm -hmm. like the aged are typically white men. Um, at least in the sample size as Brackage has uh, distributed for us. And, um, but when that moment happens, it does sort of show you that, like, I think that idea that this is a shift really comes into play, that there are sometimes new sudden arrivals, often with a very specific time frame during which they, they must be, uh, I guess, operated upon uh, in order to achieve that. So that, like, the sort of structures of what that day would actually feel like even over the course of 30 minutes, I think are, are quite easily to, uh, quite easy to extrapolate outward. And, um, and when Brad was saying about how this is absolutely not your, uh, your horror film kind of version of this, I think it's because of the ending with the, uh, the man giving his report, like that's the cap of the film. He ends his big ending is like, it's another day of work, another day right. of, of detailing facts um, and just yeah. giving them out. And now also, I mean, to be honest, when I look at that shot, I can't help but but imagine, you know, the mortality of that man. It's the first time I right. think that I, I feel like I connect that because it's really the first shot of um, of one of these uh, medical professionals on their own in like another environment away from this room doing their job. But still, they can't escape the that eventual fate. But I, 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 I left this experience reminded of the great respect one must have for the people who got those uh, professionals to that point. I mean, you, you can go back to the medieval times and see documents of, you know, trepanning and, and various procedures, you know, in, in art. And I think the, the references to Rembrandt and things, those are, those are in keeping with that tradition, a tradition, which I think maybe is, is um, never going to be quite as straightforward and grotesque as maybe it had been in times of the past. I had seen that uh, Body Worlds exhibit too. And I think that there's a certain amount of uh, fun about seeing that, a certain um, uh, enjoyment one can have in the same way that, you know, when you learn the parts of the body growing up, you have a laminated poster of a cross section on your the back door or, or the skeleton hanging on the, the metal pole. And you have those mm -hmm. things in science class, even, you know, as early as elementary school. Seeing that things like some of those things actually look the way they do and some of those things don't look the way they do is part of <laughs> learning about ourselves. And and you must think that um, around the time people began to speak, there must have been that moment that that the same moment that happens in 2001 when this this predecessor of man understands violence and tools for the first time. And there must have been a moment when someone cracked some head open and began to explore and 
experiment. And I think that, you know, um, there, autopsies being something more and more people had seen or or even like, I mean, there are moments in our history, probably very early humanity that um, would have been about everybody gathering around prehistory to to discover what it is that's inside us. And one wonders how before um, eras of stigmatism, collective uh, religion in some ways, which can keep some of those things um, on a on a spiritual plane and never allow them to to almost like the spiritual sense of death um, will always lay a huge, heavy weighted blanket over any of those practical realities because almost they're downplayed as being um, unimportant. I think that'd be true for an atheist perspective as well, because again, you don't really see the body as anything but a vessel, I suppose. But I, I think there would have been a time when people gathered around and experienced what Brackage is showing us. And that time is so long before most civilization. And perhaps there are moments like that in the Black Plague, or there are moments like that um, where, where people, you know, have encountered um, our insides, which uh, suffice it to say, it's they're the same insides that have been around for many, many years. And there's nothing different about what you're seeing in this Brackage film versus what would have happened if the first Homo sapiens, you know, were opening each other to to if not do something as nuanced as identify a cause of death, but just to see what's on the inside. And that, that the trial and error of, of early humanity, the reason why the first 16 minutes of 2001 are my favorite part is because I think that that's the most fascinating part of our history is how people did the did thousands of years of trial and error in order to, to even have a remote understanding of the things we now take for granted today. And yeah, to start figuring it out. Right. right. And I have one last, one last thing to add sure. to that, which is that I drank a Yogi tea during this and they always have, <laughs> they always have a little quote on them. That's, you know, like, I guess like, you know, a spiritual uh, fortune. Yeah. And I, I thought this one was, was unbelievably apropos to the film and, and sort of my take on it, which is you are equally as beautiful as the universe. Hmm. And I, I felt that, wow. that, 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 that's sort of true when you sort of see the, the, when, I mean, who, who, who we should feel like, you know, not only are, are, are we full of, of meat and we are a vessel, but all those things are part of some, of some strange thing that's gotten us here um, in whichever sort of evolutionary uh, approach you, you see the world uh, through. I think uh, these things are kind of magical. I remember in, in fifth grade, we dissected a clam and a fish. And in doing that process, just seeing, wow, look how beautiful this one blood vessel of the clam is. It's yellow and mm -hmm. red and it's a spiral. Mm -hmm. And it, I, mm -hmm. there, it's not, I'm not the person that says, look, bananas have a handle. Like, you know, um, <laughs> that, that, that's why God exists. Um, well, like uh, Kurt uh, Cameron, but like I, uh, but I do well, see we that. We had noses because God knew we would need glasses someday. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks God. Um, uh, so, uh, but I, I think that, you know, uh, we, we've been so lucky to have been evolved to the point that we're evolved in that it always bothers me when I feel like the, the minutia and bureaucracies and, and tedium of human existence in modern culture seems to not reckon with, um, the, the grand mysteries and wonderment within and without. And, um, those things have, have, have served us well so far, and it would be shameful to squander, um, the that combination of meat that makes people people. Hmm. 
And I think just, again, getting all of this on film, I mean, that's a very particular act as well. I mean, autopsies and morgues and morticians and, and the processing of dead bodies, that's been going on since time immemorial. But what's new here is capturing that information in a media that's reproducible and can allow us to sort of have a vicarious experience of that without actually having to step into the room uh, and the the, the um, aesthetic beauty um, slash horror terror whatever of of these images i mean i, I think i think you can you can say th these are beautiful images um though they are obviously kind of consciousness altering when you come to grips with that stuff is inside of me and if i was to be laying on that table or my body was on that table and they were to open me up to, I'd, I'd look the same way i mean there's something a little bit unsettling about you know comprehending that reality but just as a mode of visual depiction and the ability to share this these impressions broadly that's that is also a, a unique thing about this particular film and about the cinematic medium is that it's creating uh an ability to experience things you know again that one step removed virtually than rather than the live direct experience but it opens up all sorts of avenues for contemplation philosophical reflection uh, a, a growth of, of self-awareness and then a response in how we live now that we have acquired this knowledge and now that we have these insights uh, how does that affect our relationships with other people with ourselves with the natural world uh, how we choose to spend our days what we um, what we invest our lives in and what we regard as ultimately important versus ephemeral and, and disposable. So, I mean, again, these, these are the, the vistas that a film like this opens up if we uh, allow ourselves, you know, that, that opportunity and uh, don't recoil from it in horror because there's blood and guts and we don't like to watch that icky stuff, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, it, it that's in keeping with what Derek had said, um, and also Roger Ebert had said, you know, film is an empathy machine. Mm -hmm. um, and this is an example of that in one of its more, most bravest forms, I think. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we're getting close to the, uh, the end of this conversation and the end of this episode. Are, any final comments or have we spoken our piece on this? I, I think that uh, I think everybody who feels they should see it, should see it. I'd agree with Brad in that if anybody says they would like not to, it's very hard to blame them for that. In the same way, it's hard to blame somebody not wanting to see uh, Blood of the Beasts, Georges Franju, mm -hmm. or any That's of the right. other sort of things we've mentioned. I think that like some of these, I mean, I, I, I still put it at one of the, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the most challenging um, films for a lot of people to reckon with. And I think that um, it does it does require a certain amount of, of bravery and um, in viewing, say, other people's thoughts on it. I, I was a bit uh, catty earlier today, as Brad saw, about like joke reviews on Letterboxd. And as much as it's easy to make kind of jokes to cut the tension, I really do see that that there are people who have seen this film and I think didn't really take it very seriously and didn't didn't sort of give it the due time that the the incredible density of themes here um, demonstrates. So if this is something that you have seen, or if it's something that you think you would see, 
do give it that time. I mean, it's 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 a it's another purely silent experience, as many of the Brackage films are. And I think in that case, should be viewed in, in you know not on your computer while multitasking. Like this is this is very much an experience where I think that I felt. I don't know, I felt like there was one moment ex- specifically uh, where enough of a face was visible that I I considered looking away the other day. And I considered that that would be unfair to myself. More than even unfair to the art in the film, I, I just felt like that that this is, this is a film that it, in me as a viewer creates an intense obligation toward uh, my own humanity and humanity at large. And... Uh, for something to have that profound an effect, I think um, I hope everybody approaches it with with uh, a grounded humanity, but and a humility that is uh, is respectful of of ourselves. Because I I really do feel like if 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 the only thing someone gets out of it is is a joking remark, then I really think that's somebody who needs this film. You know, they need <laughs> they need to be grappling with their their their. Um, with all the things we've discussed. And if they're not grappling with those things, they will be wholly unprepared for them when they, when they encounter them in their lives. Yeah. When it becomes real. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, watching this film has to be a deliberate choice. You're not going to be able to pop this one up on the criterion channel. And even if you have the brackage discs, um, even if you hit the play all option on the disc menu, this will not come up. <laughs> you have to because, find it. You have to. You have to yeah, choose you, it. You have, you have to find it. Yeah, you have to choose it. You have to press play. <laughs> so, and, then, and there's a warning label. Like when when you select it, it says warning. <laughs> this is real autopsy footage. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. So. Well, guys, this has been, a, a, I think, a very fitting conclusion to this episode, to this season, as we kind of really, you know, contemplate the deep things of life uh, that Mr. Stan Brackage puts on the screen in front of us. So I'll give one last shot. Any any final uh, parting words before we wrap it up? Uh, don't lose your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I would... I just wanted to speak to experimental filmmakers in general that um, uh, it's really great uh, that we, we tap off the season with, uh, with a bunch of them here and we wouldn't have everything we have today without experimental filmmakers. As far as I'm concerned, Um, you know, all all the way back to Eisenstein and Ziga Veritov and Lumiere brothers and uh, even further back, keep going. Um, they were all pulling cinema apart and putting it back together again. And uh, everything that you you enjoy and get out of out of narrative films, even you know Marvels, Marvel superhero movies, whatever, everything that 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 they deliver that enjoys you that you enjoy so much came from what experimental filmmakers discovered and did. So there you go. That's me. Well, that's that's <laughs> typically why I save Frampton and Brackage for the final installments of these compendium episodes. And uh, I, I, I echo your sentiments, Brad. That's a very very well stated. So, Thanks. all right, folks. Well, this is the this is it. This is the finale for season three of Criterion Reflections. I really do want to thank my guests tonight and all the others who have contributed uh, so much of their time and their wisdom and their just their joy. Uh, and and insight into into essential cinema uh, in these conversations I've had over the past you know couple of years now. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break as we get ready for season four, 1972. I'll look to get that going in the new year in early 2021. Uh, in the meantime, 
be doing our end of the year Criterion Cast episodes. I'll talk about our favorite releases, uh, physical media releases from the Criterion Collection. And maybe we'll have another show or two uh, along those same kind of year in review type of themes uh, as we uh, wrap up uh, this unforgettable year of 2020 and everything that it's uh, brought to mind and, and, and to our experience. So, uh, yeah, I'll just kind of leave it at that. Uh, immense gratitude to everybody who's played a part in putting these shows together. And for those of you who just enjoy listening, I really appreciate your support and uh, encouragement. It means a lot to me. Uh, so we'll be looking forward to uh, the, the wonderful world of cinema circa 1972 in just a couple months. So thanks for listening, everybody. We will be coming at you soon enough. Bye-bye. Choose to make a part of me, but surely strike.